All right. Um, are we calling this? I think, I don't know. Well, it's, it's been a while since we've done one of these. Uh, it's been a while since we did one without a guest. I think the last two we did, uh, De La Soul and um, Queen is Dead. Might have been something in between there. I don't remember. I don't even know how many we've done. What is it, like 13? 14. Okay. This might be 14 or 15. All right. Um, I was thinking, I'm like, well, to keep in with, you know, the format, how we like pick a record and then we kind of go all over the place and it's kind of turning into where we talk more about the artists themselves with like one particular album being the focus, but really we talk about like the, the parts of the career that we know about for one thing and that we enjoy that we like, but I don't know. I was thinking this one uh, to just make it about the band itself and to feature one very important component, uh, which is Neil Peart from Rush. Um, I think it was... uh, It's a little bit like, like... like we we waited kind of too long to do it, um, in my mind at first. Like I wanted to do it right when it right when like the news happened that he died, you know, because that was kind of like a shock to the music world, because um, he was such a big uh, presence for decades, you know. Like um, he just changed so many things about drumming and just music in general uh, that crossed over to everybody knowing who he was and his contributions but i don't know what do you think you think we should just pick one album uh no that's what i was gonna say i i think i don't even know how we would be able to just do one album so i think the main focus besides it being neil pert um but just the band itself like we'll talk about all the different albums you know, up until a certain point that I know. I think Presto was the last album that I'm aware of. Did they do? I don't know what they've done since Presto. They still did a handful. Like yeah. right, a, right after Presto was like Roll the Bones. And then they did um, Test for Echo. There's there's a lot of them. There's the Snake and Arrows. There's a bunch. But uh, I'm, I kind of remember Snake and Arrows. I'm with you on like... Like, for me, it was, like, at Presto was when it was, uh, like, the last time I really, I really was thinking about them. Because I, I think... Because isn't that when you saw them? Wasn't that was it the, the last, Presto tour? That was the tour I saw them on. So yeah. that was 90, maybe, maybe 1990. And it was, like, Mr. Big... That soup, was that the name of the band that was like that super group? Billy Sheen and... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was like Mr. Big. It was kind of like... Wasn't it a lot of the same people in Damn Yankees? Prop. That was Mr. Big. It was like Damn Yankees without Ted Nugent. Without Ted and Nugent, yeah. other things or whatever, other people. But yeah, it was, it was a... I don't know, a big disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was... I think I spoke about this before... I, I don't remember which episode, but I, I, we did talk about Rush. We were talking about Carrie. We were talking about Rush. And I remember talking about this particular show and how 
I was excited to see them, but at the same time, when you're watching these guys perform, it's it's almost unreal how good they are, and it almost is just. I don't want. I don't. I hate to. I, want, I hate to use the word boring, but it's just. It's too good. It's like they're too good, and they're too mechanical, kind of in a way. Like you know what I mean? It's like it's not like you're seeing Van Halen with like a f- wild front man running around jumping all over yeah, the place. And plus, I mean, to give them, you know, there's only three of them, so that's one. Le- like if not one of those three is doing some like something to draw your attention, then what do you, you know? And even like like Neil Peart, you know, he's an amazing drummer, but he's not a flashy drummer. He might be flashy in the sense that he's doing, he's really busy. He's all over the drum kit and he has huge drum kits, but he's playing them. He's almost hidden in his drum kit. That's what I mean. Like he, (laughs) he's, it's like watching, like, like watching a surgeon do open heart surgery. Yeah. Unless you're really interested in that, watching it, you'd be like, well, what the fuck is the big deal of watching this guy in a lab coat doing all this stupid shit that I don't even care about? Right. Um, but you like the end result because, hey, he just saved your grandma or whatever, you yeah. know, like whatever the point of that is. But And he, yeah, he's the comparison to a surgeon is spot on because he's he's so intricate and technical in his approach to everything he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's when he added the. I don't remember what year it was, but when he added the the second kit behind him, electronic, the Sonic drums. Yeah, and when he, I don't remember which was that. It might have been um, signals. Was signals when they got a little bit more synthy? I mean, they've they always a, had the synth. They got a lot more synthy. But with yeah, signals. so I think it was around the time of signals. So when signals comes out, that's probably like I think 85? it's eighty five. No, no, is it? Earlier? I think it's 82. Pa- Power Windows is like when they're really over the top. So when they're, you know, and synth was huge in the 80s. You oh, yeah. know, even Van Halen went pretty synth with 1984. Yeah. But Def Leppard. When he would switch, and, you know, a lot of this is because of the videos I would watch of him. And when he would switch from his acoustic kit and it would like, it wasn't even theatrical. It would just rotate. spin around. It would rotate around. So then now he was on his his electronic electronic kit. kit. He didn't play the electronic kit as a substitute for the acoustic kit. He approached the electronic kit for what it was and had a whole different approach of how he even played that kit. Mm-hmm. It was almost like he was two drummers in one. Whoa. He wasn't he wasn't just like, you know, like if you had an electronic kit like you you're a drummer, if you sat down to an electronic kit, would you play it the same way you would play your acoustic kit because you knew what you were going to get out of it? Well, mechanically, at first you would. And then if you were pushing, you know, the envelope, so to speak, with uh, just a, just understanding what rhythm is and your capacity to execute rhythm, then it's like, well, shit, let's program some different sounds in here. You know, it doesn't fucking matter what sounds you trigger. You know, you can have like... You can have your your kick drum foot be like the sound of a sledgehammer, you know, laying yeah. down like rail, um, and you can have, you know what I mean. So I I would think anybody that has like some kind of like a, a little bit higher level of creativity would be drawn to that eventually. But I think at first you would just play it the way you would play a normal thing, 
You know what I mean? Right. Because that's the other thing is about his approach to just the instrument itself is if you ever watched him play the drums, the way that he approaches them, he makes a drum kit either sound really conventional or unconventional within the same context where there's some drummers that are like they hit the sides of the drum, they hit the rims, they hit the actual hardware because there are different sounds that you can get from everywhere not just where you're supposed to hit right but he manages to get like melody and even harmony for that for that uh like in that in a in a weird way with the drums in the context that they're supposed to be played in which is not easy to do you know, like you listen to a drummer, uh, I can't think of his name, but like the drummer from uh, from Crazy Horse, you know, that played on like all the Neil Young Crazy Horse records. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not even an approach like, like a Ringo Starr or Charlie Watts where they're just timekeepers, but they have their signature where there's a swing to it. The Neil Young drumming like style from Crazy Horse, whoever that drummer is, it's... It has its place. It's good, but it's like like listening to that, listening to the the drums in that sense. It almost seems like it's not possible for them to be taking out of the context where you listen to Neil Peart and you listen to a handful of Rush records. The production, even with the growth of his kit, his drum kit. There's a certain point in there where there's a handful of records where the drum production almost sounds the same from record to record. But what he's doing on the kit is just keeps getting exponentially like more and not even necessarily more complex, but just more musical. Like he was just such a musical artist that, you know, some drummers are just like like a Keith Moon. Keith Moon is just pushing time and... uh because he had a great sense of time, even though he wasn't a timekeeper per se. But the Who is just this steam steam engine that's going down that Keith Moon was driving. Um, and he was very unconventional too. But he almost has like a, like a cap on him. Like... If you really listen to a lot of Keith Moon, you can hear when he's doing his fills and when like he has a style. It's almost a it's almost a a predictable unpredictability, if that makes sense. Where mm. it's like you know he's gonna do something weird or whatever, but after a while, you kind of see his bag of tricks. Yeah. Just like Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, who was trying to copy Ginger Baker, both of those guys, like, they have their like, oh yeah, this sounds like ginger baker because not so much because of like the tone of the drum kit but also where he goes with it like when it's time for a fill it's like oh that's a ginger baker feel fill yeah. and now there's a sub there is a a subsidiary of a ginger baker feel which is a nick mason feel which he does to the death in pink floyd because he's copying ginger baker but it works but that's not like I don't know. I think that's like, is if you, if you just imagine like the the growth of the instrument of the drums, like there's people that push that envelope and then they stop pushing it. Like, yeah, and I think the like the Ginger Baker style 
was birthed out of like the wilder jazz drummers. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't necessarily a jazz. I don't know if he was a jazz drummer. I don't know if he was. That's what he started out as. That's what, he sounds like mm-hmm. he was influenced by jazz drummers. And then expanded upon that and put it into the rock realm. Mm-hmm. But P- Neil Pert reminds me, and, I, and this might be, I'm not a drummer, but I'm just thinking about it in terms of like how, what I imagine when I'm listening to this music is more symphonic and orchestrated, like kind of like the way Iron Maiden songs make you feel. Mm-hmm. It's almost like these grandiose, like orchestrated, a lot of classical mm-hmm music influence well it's it's composition yeah and it's like it's the way neil pert to me to the way he's his you know because he didn't just play the drums he wrote the lyrics Mm -hmm. to all these songs and his lyrical quality is very lit you know alliterative it's like he's storytelling and these like kind of fantasy world types type scenarios Mm -hmm. and i wouldn't say iron maiden and rush are the same type of group they're in that genre of metal but they remind me of each other in some aspects of like the the subject matter to some of their you know and even some led zeppelin songs have a lot of that quality mm-hmm. to it you know there's well, like a there's like a operatic orchestrated like quality that is not it's not in your face. Even as good of a drummer as he is, he's not threatening. He's like, he's like inviting. Like you want to, you want to hear more of the musical quality that he's playing. Not that you don't want to hear Keith Moon, but Keith Moon stirs something up in you. Like he's the kind of drummer that stirs up bar fights and and like arena chants and stuff like that. Versus, you know, with the exception of like a Tom Sawyer song or something. Or like a more aggressive like YYZ approach, but like a lot of the Rush stuff that I listen to or that I'm aware of that it's in my like library in my head is very like soundscapey, but not not like ambient music. It's mm-hmm. like intricate and you know storytelling. Mm-hmm. Even without the lyrics, it's storytelling. Yeah. Well, they're, I mean, they're a progressive band, too. Like, not every, I wouldn't say everything in their catalog could be considered to be progressive, but an album like Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres and 2112, like, that's prog, but it's not prog in the sense, like, it's not Genesis, it's not Yes, you know? Right. Progressive rock is a pretty big umbrella where... To me, I would put in that category like Soft Machine and Can and even like Noi, like even though they're kraut rock, but it's like to me, that's real progressive rock when it's like it's just like it's literally just going in one direction and it never comes back. Like to right. me, like like the first two Noi albums just sound like that. Like, it's just, it sounds like, even if you're not in a car, it sounds like you're in a car and you're on the highway and you're just going. To me, that equates to progressive. Um, And, like, how you you were saying, like, soundscapey, like, that to me is what I hear in Rush, too. Iron Maiden is almost like a progressive metal band. Like, by the time they get their new drummer, which a lot of it has to do with 
you know, the percussive, uh, you know, uh, it has to do with the motor. Because, like, you listen to the first two Iron Maiden albums, and they're almost like a punk band. Because they got Paul Diano, and he's not really singing notes. He does do some of the, like, like, like Rob Halford, like, metal, like, screaming and yeah. yelling. But he's not very good at it, but he's good for those first two Iron Maiden albums. Yeah, like, that ver- the first Iron Maiden album... It almost sounds like something that could have come out of New York in that time period, like that CBGB New York. You know what I mean? Like, you know, because of him, only because of him. They it sounds like, and I mean, it's funny because on that first album, I think it's the first album, The Phantom of the Opera. It's, it's like punk rock theater yeah you know because it's these like haunting themes and you know i'm sure iron maiden was influenced by rush just as much as they were influenced by like black sabbath because that's how they get the dark qualities but then they were also influenced by punk rock that's where they get the speed yeah you know so they're they're taking they're putting all these components together and creating what they become but the big change when you get from Iron Maiden, Killers, to Number of the Beast, they have a new singer. Bruce Dickinson's range, he's sing. it's like operatic, the it's way that he can sing. Yeah. But they still have Clive Burr, their original drummer, who's just about playing fast, and he's, he's an amazing drummer. But then they get Nickel McBrain, Peace of Mind, that is like a prog, almost classical metal album. Yeah. You know, like really long songs, tons of like just like thematic like changes. I mean, Power Slave, that's when it's like really like, holy shit, like this is borderline like Broadway. Like their shows could have been like on Broadway, like like looking at like watching Live After Death, you know, the um, the the concert that they, they filmed like. It was so much theater, you know. It was like beyond, like it's almost like they did what like King Diamond couldn't do, and even took, like I know, and trust me, you know I'm a Kiss fan for life, <laughs> and they did do a lot for theatrics, but even Iron Maiden, like I think they left Kiss in the dust when they just took, like it wasn't just about bombs. They created like these like moods and these really dramatic by like, you know, like, Oh, the lights are down and it's this. And it's like, you know, dry eyes, this, that, and the other, like just, just in a way that made it, it, it matched the music, you know? Cause yeah. And then they added the, the, what's his name? The, the Eddie crazy. Yeah. The crazy Eddie. He wasn't just on stage as a prop. He was acting out. Uh-huh. some of the scenery of the music and it's like total performance total yeah, operatic it's like, performance it's like going to watch like you're on broadway yeah. watching something you're watching you know, a play if i'm not mistaken i think nico mcbrain was eddie or i know that he was he worked he for was Iron eddie first before he was. he was in the band yeah that's, that's how they crazy. he was a drum tech that's right for clive burr also was eddie and then when Clive Burr left, he jumped in the seat and played. But he was in another band. I can't remember what band he was in. He was in a band that was like, I don't want to call them the Hollies, but he was in a band like that. No, he wasn't in the Hollies. No, not not the Hollies, but a band mm. like that. Like 
something like that was kind of like doo-woppy early That's british crazy too can you imagine where it's just like you just got some guy part of your crew that's been with you for like a few years and you're starting to go and then it ends Did up you turn the dial i don't think so because now you're going lower Turn the dial towards, like, rotate it to the right. I just did. That's better. Yeah, I might have bumped it. But that'd be like finding out that, like, just this kid that has been, you know, your driver is just all of a sudden this amazing, like, how did they not know that? Like, not how did he not get the job, but how, like, you know. How did they not know he was better than the driver? Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. But, um, But then... But all, like yes, yes was doing that in the early '70s too, where they just had these elaborate shows. A lot of Spinal Tap is making fun of yes, like that part where like the bass player doesn't come out of the cocoon. That's making <laughs> fun of the yes relayer tour, which yeah. I think that was right after Tales of Topographic Oceans, which was their giant like fucking double album, four songs, a song aside, and people started being like, "All right, this is getting too like, you know the." the dinosaurs is about to die. Yeah. But like, I've seen footage of those shows and I love that band. And I'm like, man, if I was there in person, I would fucking fall asleep. Sometimes I think it's so funny how, and, and, and we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of it, but I think it's funny how fickle the music fan base can be sometimes. Cause you hear, you have people that are just like, like a Steve Howe or somebody who just has all this talent. And I mean, the guy can just do whatever the fuck he wants. He can put one song per side on a record and, and and then people just immediately like have, there's a backlash to it. And it's like, it's just funny how we can't just accept their creativity at no matter what comes out. Like it, it always has to fit our, our frame of mind rather than us just saying, Oh, here's something new that this particular brand is doing. And let me sit with it for a little while before I tear it down or tear it apart. Like the, just our, just our inherent need to tear things down immediately just makes me laugh sometimes. And like I said, we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it too. But when I really think about it, like we, Especially since the recording, the the art of recording music has come into play with us. Like, um, now, you know, I'm, I've been taking this this opera class, and one of the things that the instructor or the professor talks about is music is a performance. What whether it was a record that we like, whether it was a concert we went to, but. In the 1600s and the 1500s, when these when these orchestra conductors were coming out to do their performances, there was no you couldn't go to a record shop and buy this piece of music. Mm-hmm. They you had to be there in the opera house or in the fucking concert hall wherever they were performing this. You had to be there that day, that time, to go and watch, you know, Handel's Messiah or whatever the fucking performance was if you were lucky you got to be there a hundred years later when somebody found that music and redid it and then figured out a way to put it down on you know 
some sort of recording. I don't know if it was 100 years, whatever, however many fucking years later, where now we can just listen to Handel's Messiah whenever the fuck we want. But there's, there's something about the aspect of performance that we hold in regard to, like, we put certain artists on these pedestals and we give them awards and we give them you know chart numbers and we we attribute all these things to it it's like when we when you just break it down it's it's just mere it's just a performance and this particular band had all the talent in the world from three people to make these incredible fucking records that just have gone I, I would not. I would not classify Rush as un. Uh, what do you call it? Underrated. But they do get a lot of like flack in like they're looked upon as like kind of like this nerdy rock kind of category. Mm-hmm. Or like if you listen to Rush, you're a certain kind of music fan. You're like, and there was you know this isn't the Beatles versus Stones kind of thing. But like, if you met somebody who listened to who was more into Rush than they were into. Black Sabbath or something like that, you would attribute them to being like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of nerdy kind of mm-hmm. a person, right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it's like the the level that these guys can play and the level at which these guys can perform, whether it be on just a record in the studio or in a live concert, is just like it. It's like a gift to us. We 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 should just be lucky that these people exist, you know, Mm -hmm. to some degree. And in particular, this drummer who not only wrote the lyrics to most of these songs, but his fucking abilities behind the kit is just astounding. And it's like probably one of the best drummers that ever lived, you know, in this category of music. And it probably bleeds along to other, you know, other categories, but like, you know, he's not, He's not a jazz drummer who's playing on a on a two piece kit, <clears throat> you know, uh, kind of a guy. He's got I don't even know what his piece counts were twenty two piece drum kits. I don't think. Well, maybe they were pretty fucking extravagant. It wasn't like Terry Bozio, <laughs> but it was definitely like it was extravagant. It was up there. Yeah, and you know, I just like sometimes I just like I like to laugh at myself even for thinking certain things about things. Sometimes I'm just like, fuck, man. I should have enjoyed being there in the presence of this band way more than I did at the time that I was there. You know, you don't think that you did appreciate it? I mean, I, I, I didn't. I remember I remember being Rush I mean, fans like I appreciated being able to go and being there. But my viewpoint oh, you're talking now, about just seeing them live just seeing them live i thought you meant just being a fan even prior oh no no to no that. i've always been a i've been a pretty decent you know yeah. i've always appreciated their music i mean to actually be in their presence at that live performance mm. like i really wish that i had either gone to see them more a couple more times after that cuz that was the only time i saw them yeah that was the one and only I time i never i never saw them the one and only time i got to see them and you know they did everything that i wanted to hear at up to that catalog point, they did subdivisions. They did, you know, Tom Sawyer. They did well, yeah. Red Barchetta and YYZ and all the all Fly By Night and all the songs that I was there to listen to. They did some stuff that I would, you know, they had to do some of the new stuff. But it's it's just one of those things where it's like, man, you look back and you're just like, fuck, all the shows that I've been to that I was more 
in tune with like getting wrecked and fucking just socializing than just like why didn't I just sit there and absorb all of it? You know, and I did. I did. I was there, and I did. I do remember a pretty large amount of the shows that I went to. Mm-hmm. But there were some shows where I have zero memory of what actually took place. I remember going to the show. Yeah. I just don't remember what actually took place, or I didn't really get to appreciate it. And I, I wouldn't pinpoint that maybe so sharply, but I think the big music festival is what, like kind of cultivated that that type of behavior because i remember going to shows too there was times where it really didn't even matter who i was going to go see because i just wanted to go and be with my friends and you know get inebriated and just be in the moment i'm not doing anything to it be in the moment of everything um and it was fun you know it was almost like the music was just like a backdrop so, yeah, it was like a place for us to go and hang out with like-minded people yeah. with music that we liked, but we were there more to hang out. And that's like, that's what Woodstock was. Yeah. Woodstock, I mean, all the people that, not all of them, but a lot of the, major, a lot of the people, the artists that played at Woodstock were already big stars. But like, no one knew who Richie Havens was. That made him a star. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and uh, he Cros- was the opener, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That was their first show, so no one. But they already knew who those guys were from the Hollies, Buffalo Springfield, and the from the band Birds. That, that turned it down. Was it Led Zeppelin or the Who played there? Cream turned it down. The Led who Zeppelin played. turned it down, right? Um, they might have. Or it was the, like a the band. Doors, like, the Doors turned it down. It was. I, I don't know if it was. Maybe I'm inaccurate. It was a band that actually went, but then left, didn't perform. Was that Led Zeppelin? I don't think or so. I, I don't think Led Zeppelin was ever up. supposed to. Do. Hmm. Bob Dylan turned it down. Um, well, he turned it down. Be- do you think he turned it down because of the backlash of the folk people against him? Or? I think at that point it was already it was already years past that. Hmm. Not many years, but. Um, a lot had happened, but no, I think because didn't he play? I think he did the Isle of Wight, Uh-oh. and that wasn't. I don't think that was before the there was like big contractual things where it's like, oh, you can't play for a month, right, right, right. Prior, I don't really or, think that existed back then. It it started to yeah. Did it with like Bill Graham and the and the the Fillmore definitely did. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, I could see the Fillmore, but uh, like. There was so many people that went to those things that were like, let's just fucking go. Yeah. And I mean, you've seen everyone, anybody who's a music fan knows of what Woodstock was and probably has at least seen an image of it. So it's like, imagine the people that were way, way in the back. Like, there's no way they had the same experience <laughs> as the people in the front. Yeah. And, like, there's just... Just because I'm a weirdo and I pay attention to details. But, like, I'm watching um, the uh, Song Remains the Same. You know, the Led Zeppelin, uh, them at Madison Square Garden. And when you see the lights are out and they're getting ready, you could tell that the show's going to start. Um, and if you look back in the arena you see people walking and it's not like they're running to their seats, but you know, you imagine during a concert, say it's two hours long. There's a, there's amount of foot traffic that's constantly happening, whether it's people going to and from the bathroom or whatever, but it's like, 
how wasn't every single person just like engaged completely like how do you go like you fucking hold it you know i mean you go to a movie theater not that many people walk out typically on (laughs) average you know so it's like this is a fucking live concert you're watching fucking what people did at a concert you're watching what people are doing right how can you miss a second of it but there's just this different attitude of like ah but it's just a party you know like yeah so that is completely different like how you brought up like classical music in the 15th century or whatever those were performances that was way more like a theater you don't get up and fucking go get popcorn in the middle of an opera or a you know but it's like what happened why is there a degradation of what's happening on that stage um as opposed to what has happened when really it's still just a musical performance. And I think that's because public opinion has been allowed to channel itself into thinking it knows more. When it when it's like the public thinks they know what they want, but really they don't. And then when they think they do, that's how you get people being like, okay, well, fuck the Ramones. No one cared about them. But once they figured out that that was fucking great... Then you get down to how many Ramones albums and you're just like, well, fuck, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. Do you want a new Ramones album? Or if you get that new Ramones album and it's completely different, are you going to shit all over it? So now you're in this position of like, it's almost like the consumer's confused because they think they know what they want, but they have no fucking clue. And then that goes back to the artist and now they're just like, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Yeah. You know, if we keep giving them like the Rolling Stones, if you say we're going to put the same album out 10 times, but then we put something out new and you guys hate it. Like, what the fuck do you want? Yeah. And then or if you're the Beatles and you you kind of they're almost kind of like a Miles Davis where they just keep progressing and then they get to a point where they're like, we're done. Then you get mad at them. Yeah. So and that's what I was saying. It's like we go we. We, it, it's almost like that that uh, that coliseum aspect where we just need to be entertained at all times. Go in there and kill the fucking tiger. Go in there and slay mm-hmm. the fucking lion. Like we need you guys to, we need you to be up to what we have created in our brains as what is valuable and good. Instead of just saying, oh, shit, these people can do something that I cannot do. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to appreciate it because I cannot do this. I can't go into my house and fucking perform a whole goddamn fucking orchestra. You know, even if I had all the fucking instruments in this room, I couldn't just jump on a timpani and a fucking cello and all. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't create my own orchestra by myself. And if I invited friends over and we all got on these things and we weren't in a concert hall, we'd create some some sort of chaotic mess. But when we don't get to appreciate that, it's like I think it has a lot to do, too, with like the the cultural history of things, because like obviously the Europeans started the performance stuff you know, different kind of performance stuff than than it did when it like here we had the Delta Blues and probably a lot of like, yeah, vaudeville. And we had a lot of like uh, Native American type performances, you know, like 
outdoor fucking original powwow baby yeah like powwows and shit <laughs> so like if you go to if you think about like what the europeans were doing in their operatic houses and their fucking concert halls and stuff like that and like it was like prim and proper and you sat and you had your little goggles on and you watched and like i remember being at a um yeah, there, was I, I know a, a there was an etiquette there was an etiquette too it was an etiquette yeah and i know a lot of rock bands in the 80s and the 90s talked about going to play for the first time in some of these other countries and being like weirded out by the by the etiquette that the that the audience was giving to them mm-hmm. you know and i remember going to see love and rockets at uh it was at the irvine meadows and they asked us to sit down mm-hmm. <laughs> they like they asked us three times they're like you know on these slower songs do you guys mind just sitting you know and we, and you know this is an american you know 1980s american teenage crowd mm-hmm. where we're just like what the an f-? amphitheater at that at an amphitheater <laughs> yeah and it's like this is the same same amphitheater that the first Lollapalooza was held at you know mm-hmm. and we all were kind of just saying we had fucking like third row ticket we had third row seat tickets you know it was like really great seats and i was just like they want us to sit and you know we sat but you know, we're over here trying to get fucking fucked up and trying to rage. And it's like, you know, Love and Rockets is not a, that kind of a band anyway. They're more, they are way more mellow. They do have a couple of, you know, upbeat songs, whatever. But we were just kind of weirded out by it. And I, you know, and I go back and I think about that. I was like, yeah, you know, they were accustomed to their homegrown audience who would just sit there and watch them perform. It wasn't like they needed to be, you know, doing all these other things that were going on they were just there to sit watch you guys perform and i don't it is weird that we don't treat music with the same respect that we would if we all went to a ballet we wouldn't be you know acting the way we did if we were you know watching a fucking band play Mm -hmm. and it's it's weird how that culture changed to this is our party and you guys are just there to entertain us when we want to pay attention to you i think it's the 60s well it's like it's like the fucking the i mean what did the grateful dead come out of they came out of that whole festival uh mid you know it started with monterey in 67 yeah everything that went into like the 70s which you could even you know put like cal jam in there which at least that was other stuff that happened on the west coast uh altamont all these you know festivals but like the grateful dead um, we've talked, you know, little scant amounts of about this band, and uh, I like I like some of their music, but honestly, it's like that whole thing turned into s- this big phenomenon that had very little to do with the music. It was like, like I don't even know if the if Grateful Dead concerts like rival the the beginnings of like even just tailgating because it just seemed like in that parking lot probably for fucking grateful dead concerts it's like how many of those people didn't even go inside probably i'm you know um, 50 percent so that right there (laughs) is the like you know it's it's like fucking like a laker game like so many people go to the Laker game just so they could be seen. Yeah. They don't fucking care that the that there's anything happening. And then at halftime, there's supposedly this big like 
happening that happens somewhere secretly in the Staples Center mm. where it used to be in the forum where it's like a like a like a like a VIP club or whatever where they just go and have drinks but it's like that's where like I'm sure power meetings are set and yeah. it's like you know oh my god you're just you just want to be in that room and it's like what the f like you know at that point like you would think what so what the, the why not just create that room on its own but that would take some like creativity it's like oh let's just go do it at the laker game because we can't think of what it is to do and this makes me think of like what you're saying earlier about the cult like people in rome watching the fucking the the lion kill the slave and they eventually come and kill the lion they want to see these things acted out you know yeah and but the thing is is someone had to come up with what was to be seen in the first place you know yeah and that's what i don't think the public opinion is i think that's what they don't have the respect for is that it's like it's not just that you're going to see a band and oh well this band sucks it's like you know there's a whole fucking history to why that even exists in the first place and even if a band does suck i still respect that they fucking are up there doing it yeah that's the one thing that i you know i've i've tried my hand at playing a couple of different instruments for a while and i've just i have always have respected people's ability even if you're mediocre unless you're really just a disaster <laughs> i i you know and i've been to some performances where i'm just like this is a goddamn disaster. This is a travesty. This is a disaster. But for the most part, even a mediocre band is better than I can do. Mm -hmm. You know? And, I, and I've always had that stance. Like, I know what my abilities are. Or I should say, I know what my inabilities are. And I can appreciate that these guys are mediocre at best, but better than anything I can possibly do. And... I think that there's a, you know, like the Grateful Dead scene, not the band, but the Grateful Dead scene lends itself to little clicky scenes when you go to any, any city, any, any genre, any genre or subgenre of music. Like, you know, like when we started to see the goth kids and the new wave kids and the punk kids separating into their little clicks and, and, they, you know, like the, the straight edge kids had their shows and the punk kids had their shows. It's like most of those people attach themselves to that. I would say a good majority of them did appreciate that music, but the sense of belonging to something was a bigger driving, bigger driving force. force. Of course. And one of the things about the modern day, what's happening now, one of the things I do like about it is there's a lot less of that. This is more, this is amalgamated into like a, gener a generic scene. Like I haven't been to Coachella since the first one, but I can imagine if you went to Coachella, you probably wouldn't be able to designate who was there to see which band well, anymore. And you know why that is? It's because right now, anybody that could even have a chance to play Coachella already has to be hip. Right. So, like, to in order to be hip, you just have to know 
what like a handful of bands that are current right now and it doesn't matter if you're dressing like your hip hop because they're all just like you said like it's like an amalgamation but so thinking of that like the per- the kid that wanted to that was drawn to the sense of belonging that just happened to fit in to coincide with like a musical genre the thing that's cool about real musicians is there might be a musician that's in a scene you know and maybe that's how they dress or whatever but real musicians could connect to other real musicians because it's all just about making music it's not about this fucking this fake ass you know but there's a lot of that out there and this made me think the other day like you know how there was like rock band that game and it got really popular i was thinking man you know what would be great it would be great eventually and i bet you this this is something that would be huge so you know how they have all these virtual reality games and lifestyle things, whatever. They need they need to make a better version of Rock Band where you could wear your virtual reality mask and you get to basically be on the stage at a festival or a club or an arena, a stadium, and you get to feel what it's like to play in front of all those people and it has the cheering and whatever and you're actually going through the motions of playing like a song like if you're oh i want to i want to feel what it's like to be in fucking ted ted uh uh not ted what the fuck um tom petty and the heartbreakers i want to feel what that was like to be tom petty at live aid so then you're tom petty at live aid if they made something like that that would be amazing because then that would keep all those people that have no business even trying to do it in the first place there. So it's like, you know what you do? Then you get however many people are in that band, the four or five virtual reality games and give it to the strokes. So actually- they could fucking do that. Cause all the rich kids that just want to play house, it's like, they're getting to do that. They should do something like that. Like, it transform like it's it would be it seems like it would be not that hard to transform like a karaoke bar into that mm-hmm. like but like imagine a virtual one because then you could right. just do it all but what i'm saying do it like all a, night. it's like a booth so you're in a booth and the the i guess it would be the same as like wearing goggles or something you know what they need to do this is my idea a while ago for karaoke is it was when we went to asha's uh to the hyperion uh Public? public house when when they opened the second one in uh isn't it on hyperion mm-hmm. um the one in silver lake yeah we went to the back bar and they were doing karaoke i had this idea before then but i really had it there the karaoke booth should just be a shower you should just be singing in a shower <laughs> because how just many curtain. how many more people are going to do it yeah. and it's going to sound better you. Because it has acoustics, yeah. you know, and then it's kitschy because it's like those, like, you know, the good time, what is it? Good time Davy Wayne's, like those bars where, like, you walk in through a refrigerator oh, or the yeah. one where you go and, you know, like all that kitschy bullshit doesn't have that long of a lifespan, but still. Um, uh, but, anyways, um, yeah, like the, like, if you look at, you look at an orchestra, it takes a lot of musicians to make up an, an entire orchestra. Uh, is anyone thinking uh, just off on paper probably are people probably thinking oh they're on hip 
they're wearing fucking tuxedos and they're playing this fucking foo-foo music for old people doesn't matter they're still making music they're still creating something they're a part of something and how do you know what they are outside of off of that stage you know but the thing that makes me upset going back to talking about rush and like public opinion like rush is like yes where they are at the top tier but they aren't they weren't always there on paper because people didn't give them the respect they like made fun of them or you got made fun of if you like this band right. when it came full circle and now you have fucking hipster joe wearing a rush or a yes shirt now it's cool to like them it's like that's that's the thing that just pisses me off where it's like you didn't fucking like them or you were too afraid to say you like them like there should be no guilty pleasures when it comes to music that's yeah. that's stupid you know you shouldn't be ashamed to say that you like fucking whatever it is that's going on it's just if it's good and it it connects to you that's the point of it yeah you know um but this whole like you know like like when fucking like a few years back when fucking everyone was all over steely dan's nuts it's like you motherfuckers wouldn't even have touched anything by that band But now all of a sudden it's cool to like them because, and, and another thing that really makes me upset, like the last, I think the, maybe not the last, but towards the end of when I was playing records out in public, I was dabbling because I liked it. I was playing soft rock and it wasn't that people hated it and they were like, oh my God, I would, I would do like sets of it where maybe it's not so busy or whatever and I would sneak shit in because I liked it. Anybody, everyone should be doing stuff that they like first, you know, let the public figure it out later. But then it was like, then a few years later, it's like, now it's this whole yacht rock thing. And it's like, you mother, like people didn't care about any of that music. You guys all made fun of that shit. Now the public turns around because they're running out of things to create. So they got to go and, oh, let's dig up and, oh, check this out. Fuck hollow notes. They actually were good. But then to just act like, oh, I've always been doing this, or this is this is yacht right, rock, yeah. and it's like, motherfucker, just a week ago, you probably looked like you came out of the hills of Laurel Canyon because you were still trying to ride that Brian Jonestown massacre fucking tail, and now all of a sudden, you got topsiders and uh, you're prepped out because this is it's like. There's so many. See, there's so much of that that is just. It's just a waste. It's just in the way. I think what that. I think what that stems from. Is the fact that, all the lines have been blurred, and there is no, separate factions of like subgroups of. I mean, there still are. I'm sure there still are. Gutter punk kids somewhere, and you know, and oh yeah, and what have you, but. I think this need to like be the first sub group out there who's wearing polo shirts with the collars popped up and topsiders and and listening to fucking Pablo Cruz at a fucking wine spritzer party is because that dif- you know the differentiations of the of the sub genres from the 80s is no more. I think that's mm-hmm. what the new version of that is. And because it's blurred, you can be a skater who dresses like a fucking, you know, yacht rock nerd that listens to fucking, uh, you know, 
Knights or Reb or or something like you know it's like and and I don't I don't I don't care that people are trying to discover the music, but when they try to make it a thing, is the only thing that bothers me about it. It's like yeah, that's the that's especially the... with like people who they you know I don't know what what a young kid thinks of me when they look at me in the sense of like what I know about music and like if a young kid does spend the time to talk to me about music and I start to like you know unravel my like knowledge of of music and stuff like that it's like a lot of times people don't have like the depth they they read something on Pitchfork, so they talk about it, but they don't even know the history of that particular album or band or anything, or they don't even know who the members, where the members came from, from another band or something. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like it's weird because they have all the access to the information now, so they can fake it. And and one of the things I remember growing up is you fucking got your ass kicked if you tried to fake it. Yeah, but but like what you're saying, even though they have everything at their disposal, you got to think though the reason why they're not trying to delve deeper is because they're still they're getting spoon fed so much of it. If you're getting if someone's feeding you, you don't have to go and find figure out how to feed you. You don't have to eat then. Yeah. You don't even have to think about eating. So thinking of it in that sense, like you don't have to think of what music to consume. It's right there for you, you know. And the subdivisions that we grew up with were, I guess, the inklings of, of it being like coming into this, like being channeled into this like singular path where, you know, at a certain point there was Thrasher magazine right next to hip parader if you pick up thrasher because it's skateboarding but there's still there was still a lot of music to be found in there yeah then you learn about this if you pick up hip parader you're learning just about metal, metal. um and vice you know like there's the, so now it's just like this big channel but what i don't what i don't like is even if you're being spoon fed and you are not delving it's that the creativity is stifled where it's like with us back then say you saw something in a magazine and you didn't have the money to do it kids would figure out how to fucking just at least make a copy of it yeah kids nowadays it's like they don't even try because well you know what just find the next thing you know like I don't I, like that's the, that to me is where where it's it's problematic where it's just like it's okay if you're if if you are caught in this like this this world right now where it seems like there's there's nothing original this that and the other but that doesn't mean that you should just give up and not be creative like how do you get to you know the next thing that could be like a, a spark of something new, you know, yeah. um, and taking it back. Cause we haven't talked about rush in like the two hours. Um, that's kind of like how Neil Pert plays the drums. Um, he has this style where I remember f- 
I forget who said it. Someone said it somewhere. It might have been in the movie. The um, what's the name of the movie? Uh, Exit Stage Left. No, no, no. The documentary that was on Netflix. Uh, it's like the name of one of their records, I think. It's not all the world's a stage. I don't know. Um, but anyways, someone points out they're like, if you if you're a drummer and you study Neil Peart, he'll teach you how to play everything. And it's true. Like, he plays reggae beats. He plays rock and roll beats. He plays different time signatures. He plays jazz. He plays orchestra. He plays, you know what I mean? So, in order for someone, because he had to come out of somewhere, too. Like, you know, he was a kid playing in, like, in a prog rock band, uh, got the opportunity to play in Rush, and then just exploded, where you go through the records like fly by night's the first record that he was on. And then it was crest of steel. And then they did 2112 farewell to Kings hemispheres. Um, there might be something in between. I don't think there is, but then moving pictures, moving pictures pictures is like, and even all of them say it, maybe not Alex Lifeson. I'm not sure, but I definitely know Neil Peart and Getty Lee have referenced that that was their favorite period of the band and that that's their peak that's their pinnacle Um, that was the first moving pictures was the first uh i I, that was the first one that that got me aware of the actual sound of rush for some reason every time i think of rush i think of the fly by night album cover because that was the one that i always saw Mm -hmm. like in the record stores that's and, the first one I bought. And it always freaked me out. <laughs> like that picture of that owl and like, oh, it just, it, you know, a lot of my experiences of going into the record store was literally judging a book by its cover it was literally, mm-hmm. I would be attracted to the cover art. Oh yeah. And the cover art was just did not fly by night's cover art just did not represent what was on that fucking record <laughs> you know you go back and you listen to it, and that is a kick-ass fucking record but when you just look at a fucking picture of an owl with a tiny little fucking <laughs> you know title at the top you're just like what could this possibly be like i you know they i'm expecting to hear some fucking billy ocean or something bad fucking from that. artwork yeah i mean terrible <laughs> artwork and moving pictures I think, I want to say it was Scott Gilfillan who had it. I think it it was. And it was more intriguing. It still was not, it still doesn't depict what's to come when you put that on. But as soon as you hear the first track, I think it's the second side. I think it's side two. Does side two start with YYZ? Or is YYZ? I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. Whatever which one it is, as soon as you hear that, you're just like, what? Like, it just, that that was it. Like, it just drew me in. Like, I was done. Like, and then, of course, on KLOS or whoever, whatever radio station back in the day would play Tom Sawyer, like, that shit was just, like, magnetic. It was just like, this mm-hmm. is what I want to listen to. Like, this song, I want to hear more stuff that sounds like this. And there really wasn't a lot that sounded like that. No. And that's the, that's the crazy thing, like, just all the components. I mean, there's been a lot, obviously, too, because I'm I'm a drummer, so, and I, Neil Peart is undeniably, un, 
huge influence on I don't see how it can't be an influence on every drummer that exists, at least in the West. Um, but um, he he he's a weird like this is how it is in the timeline, and this is what makes it really eye opening how there are not that many like legendary artists, um, at least in my book. He grew up and he was a fan of both John Bonham and Keith Moon. Mm. And he encapsulates both of them. At the same time. Yeah. Because the other thing, when we, you know, we talked a little bit about Keith Moon, we talked about Ginger Baker. The thing about John Bonham is, and why he gets so much credit, is he innovated, he created beats. Like he basically was like, oh, rock and roll? These are all the beats you need to know. Like he basically lo- laid the groundwork, you know? Yeah. And then like we were talking about like Crazy Horse. Like you listen to a lot of Neil Young and it's Neil Young doesn't need a crazy drummer. Mm-mm. He needs someone to hit boom, boom, bap, boom, boom, yeah. bap. Still swinging it. Still, you know, again, like, you know, like a Charlie Watts is different than Ringo. If you switch those guys in the bands that they were in, totally different bands. But again, not flashy, not pushing, not innovating, not necessarily pushing boundaries, but very, very important. But Neil Peart, like, I almost want to say it kind of, for me, it kind of ends with him as far as in the timeline, because you have all these other drummers where it's like, you, you know, people make a big fuss about like Taylor Hawkins, Dave Grohl, um, who's the other, the guy, the drummer from Tool. I don't like the drummer from Tool. I'm not a. I don't like fucking drum solos, and I don't like just. It's just a bunch of noise to me. Like Dave Lombardo going ape shit on a drum set in the context of a Slayer song. That I'll take any day over all that other stuff. But I don't necessarily think that. Like I don't want to listen to Dave Lombardo, though. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I don't want to learn anything from him. He's doing something that's all about speed and precision and like just fucking voracious fucking power, yeah. which is total. I respect it, and I'm fucking. I, I, he's a god, but like that's 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 like pushing drumming like that much. You know, John Bonham's pushing drumming like that because he's giving you vocabulary. He's basically saying, hey, this is all the and things you could do. And he's also giving it to you in, in, in another form because a lot of Led Zeppelin beats turned into hip-hop beats. Exactly. You so get he, it twice. So you get Led Zeppelin twice. Yeah, you get the original organic Led Zeppelin, and then you get, off the top of my head, Beastie Boys... Uh, they used a handful of Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. beats. I want to say at least three or four. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who else. Oh, no, they used the Doors. I was like, Nas used the Doors beat. Um, but there was other hip-hop bands that, that sampled it, too. It's like... Oh, of course. It's like that that vocabulary that he made, you know... Pay dividends twice. It's fucking insane. Yeah, and that's that's like what you hear like in popular music, and that's the thing that's crazy is Neil Peart is up there with those guys, but he is a student of theirs. You know right. what I mean? Like Keith Moon and 
well, Keith Moon was already dead by the time that, you know, Neil Peart was really being, like, reveled as the genius that he was. But um, actually, both of them probably. Well, no, because, I mean, John Bonham died in 1980. Uh, and I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of growth in Keith Moon's playing. If you go from my generation to uh, Baba O'Reilly, like, that's, that doesn't even sound like the same band sometimes. Yeah. You know. He still has the same style. It's just different. But yeah, he, he has he has phases. Yeah. You know, um, I think John Bonham is kind of just like he was kind of like a Miles Davis, where it's just like, oh, this is what I'm doing now. I'm doing this. Yeah. Now, and then Neil Peart again gets like this innovation and this vocabulary. Like, he gets innovation from Keith Moon, vocabulary from uh, John Bonham, and comes up with this really inventive and fearless style of drumming. Because, like, to me, when I listen to him, he's doing things like... Like, when you're playing an instrument, or even, like, say, you know, when you're... If you're if, even if you're just doing a, a drawing... Say you're doing a drawing of just an inanimate object or whatever. Or if, or if it's just your imagination. Either way, at first in your mind's eye, you can picture exactly what you want it to be. If you have the talent to make that happen, you're gold. Most of us don't have that because it's like, fuck, I, in my head it looks, but this is not the, what it looked like in my head. Yeah. You know, there's that. And what that requires is talent, diligence, all these things. You know, you need a skill set. You need tools. But what he's doing is, so basically think of that. Like when I'm playing my instrument, like sometimes you're just playing and you just, you see something or you're just like, fuck it. If I just did this right here, if I could pull it off, it's like a skateboarder, you know, you need courage you, to, to fucking try to go up that side of that half pipe and know how you're going to fucking land. Cause if you fucking, you, you could break your, you could snap your neck. If not, yeah, it's like, it's a, it's the ability to have a technical application to what you're thinking of doing. And some people have that ability to have like, I think sometimes when I listen to music and I'm like, oh, this sounds like something it's derivative of another song or it's derivative of, you know, a certain style of music or whatever. And I'm just like, it's not, and it, it's not that it's not done well. It's just, it's so derivative that you're just like, were they trying to make it sound just like that other song or was it a failure to have the technical application to make it sound like what they saw, what they had in their head and it ended up sounding like this mm -hmm. you know that's like uh what's what's that song um uh it's a pink floyd song sid barrett era um careful eugene no it's the setting the controls dun, dun, dun. It's it's on Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's an instrumental. In? It's an instrumental. Oh, really good riff. It's like fucking like tough, like almost like 
proto metal riff. It's a That's not astronomy Um God, I gotta look it up. It's on Piper? Yeah. It's like one of my favorite songs. The, the only thing that sucks for me about that song is because it's just a good rock and roll song, but then it just turns into this whole like, like proggy like soundscape thing at the end where that part I'm not a big fan of. Especially Matilda like, Mother, Flaming, Power, Power Touch, Take Up Thy Stethoscope, Chapter 24, The Scarecrow or Bike. Oh, maybe it's not. Well, Interstellar Overdrive. That's the one I said. Is it? You said astronomy. I said, oh, I said astronomy to me. Yeah. This one? Yeah. Um, so this song, Sid Barrett was... Oh. Sid Barrett was trying to play My Little Red Book by Love, and he couldn't figure it out. And this is what he came up with. So this with. is the accident. Yeah. And it's like... You can hear you can hear my little road book in there. Dun, 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 but dun, slow. Dun, dun. Yeah, but slow and all heavy, and it's like, well, fuck. Thank God he did that. You know what I mean? Because then we wouldn't have got this song. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, but I don't know. It's weird. Like the way. Imagine so like Neil Peart's approach to the way that he like plays fills and stuff. It's almost like he is like a special agent that's outside of the room, and he knows that there's going to be you know people and enemies inside that he's going to have to take care of. And he's just like fuck it. He runs in the door and he just kills everybody. <laughs> like that's what it sounds like to me because he's like he's doing everything that you wished you could do. And pulling it off every single fucking time. And you're yeah. just like, how did he eat? Like, physically, how do you get back? And t- how are you getting to all these places? How are you making all these things happen? You know? And like, yeah, he, I was watching something. I was watching a performance of his. Um, it might have been Red Barchetta. And it was like an overhead camera view. Mm-hmm. And you're just looking at what he's doing. And it's like he's pre-programmed mm-hmm. so that it's like automation. It's like his, and I'm sure he's playing with this, with plenty of emotion. I'm sure he has oh, yeah. all that going on, visceral emotion. But like when you're watching him, it's just, it's like, it's like automation. It's just like everything is, is calculated to be exactly where he needs to be at that time. And it's like, it's like mind. I mean, I've I've never even tried to play the drums, other than trying to do solos on your kit with hangers. But mm. but like, I've never even looked at the drums and thought, okay, I can do this. Like, it looks like one of the hardest things to fucking do. Mm. You know, from from a musical standpoint, like just looking at it, it's just like I can't be in all these places at the same time, or all you know, I don't even know how to follow a fill to like a just a downbeat you know like i don't where where the hits go like i always feel like hitting the hi-hat and then hitting the snare like it's it's like a train wreck for me you Mm -hmm. know and you look at somebody like him and you know when you get that good overhead view when you're just looking down so you just see 
top of his head, and then just the arms and the sticks are just flailing. And I don't, I don't, I shouldn't say flailing because he's not like a Tommy Lee type of drummer or like Tommy Lee is making more motions with his arms and he's hitting the fucking drum sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, That's like a Keith Moon style. But I lo- like, I'm a huge fan of Tommy Lee. I love the way I like to watch him drum. He's mm-hmm. exciting to watch, you know. And I, I like Motley Crue. I don't give a fuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And it's like, but when you watch, but when you're listening to Rush, and it's like it's precise. And then the bass, the guitar drive, and then Alex filling in over the top with his like guitar work it's like it's it's like this visceral thing and it's it's heavy enough to like get you excited but it's also just like so intricate enough that you just like you almost get lulled back into just like man this shit's fucking in in, like intricate as an orchestra even though they're not playing orchestra instruments Mm -hmm. you know it's like 30 fucking violins, 20 fucking cellos, 10 timpanis in the in the flutes and shit. It's like there's three fucking guys mm-hmm. making all this, you know, orchestration and it's 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 pretty great. The last a big a big uh band that that owes everything to Rush as far as I'm concerned is Primus. And they opened up for Slayer at that last show I went to. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the first times I ever just stood and watched Primus perform was this last this show in back in November, mm-hmm. and I was watching them and I was just like, I would say they probably have the amount the same amount of talent that Rush has. They just don't have, you know, they're I would say they're like a a, a comical version of Rush, mm-hmm. not like not like a parody of Rush. But like their song structures and their their like subject matters are just funny, kind of you know they're comical. Mm-hmm. Winona has a big brown beaver. Like Rush is not going to make a song called that, or mm-hmm. you know the lyrical content of these kinds of things. But when I was watching them and like Les Claypool is a talented motherfucker, and he's not playing keyboards and playing bass the way Geddy Lee does, but. He can sing and he can play. He almost has the same talent as that one. Oh god, what was that jazz guy's name? Charlie, Charlie Hunter. You ever see Charlie mm-hmm. Hunter play? Yeah, like he, seven string guitar. But he would bass play and like guitar. a bass and guitar at the mm-hmm. same time. And I feel like Les Claypool, he's got that kind of a talent where he's playing like these like he's playing rhythm and melody. At the same yeah, he's time. playing rhythm and melody on one instrument at the same fucking time. And it just, I just stood there and I just was watching him. And I was just like, fuck, like. How does he, how is he doing this? And even their drummer's really good. I can't oh, yeah. remember his name right now. Tim Alexander. Tim Tim Alexander. And then Larry Lalonde uh from Possessed is on guitar. Um but like it's and I, you know I wouldn't say they're derivative of Rush. I think that they're set up in the same format as Rush. And even their first album they even played YYZ the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. But they did of Rush cover, they did YYZ that night. Mm. And it was fucking great. And it was like almost as good as watching Rush actually do it, mm-hmm. you know, because there's no there's no vocals, so he's, there's nothing to fuck yeah. up in that respect. And I was just like, that was when I was like, I, you know, Neil Peart has been gone, what, two years now, a year and a half now? He died, I thought he died this year. No, not 20, 2020? I thought so. Oh, shit, okay. Um thought he died in January or something. But, like, 
watching them perform that, and then it, he might it might have been January, and then um, that was one of the things where I was like, "Fuck, I want." It would have been great to see to see Rush again, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and like how you're saying, like you know that they kind of did like a good carbon copy of one song and makes you appreciate you know that someone had to write all that stuff to begin with and that's the thing with like like there's there's only so many people in all art forms that they set a benchmark whether they were meaning to or not which most of the time they're not because they're just being true to their their creativity Mm -hmm. but it's like neil pert is one of those players for everything he contributed that I honestly don't see how it's ever going to be matched. Even just matched. And I don't mean matched like someone that could fucking play all of his shit. There's tons of people out there that could play what he's playing. Right. But the fact that he's the one that created all of that, right. though. So someone matched, meaning that you have just a big of a vocabulary that is indigenous to your own skill set. It's like when you think of like painting, you know? Like you look at these like influential painters that i mean someone had to be the first guy to fucking fi- to paint with oils and the first person that was good at using oils because that's a difference too just the fr- the early pioneers it it takes so many components you know like it's just studying jazz just studying uh, drumming to begin with like the actual drum kit came out of jazz you know so you have these early guys that were putting it together. The guy that put one of the drums on the fucking ground. Yeah. And then was like, oh, let's make it bigger and let's hit it lower. And then the first guy that just came up with the the the, le- the dialogue between a kick drum and a snare drum, that's like the guy that made the wheel. So you can't compare the guy that made the wheel to the guy that made the Tesla. Mm. You know, but... That guy couldn't have made the Tesla without the guy that made the wheel. Right. But that doesn't say that, you know, these benchmarks, you know, with, I mean, you, they're, they're all over the place. They're all around us. And that's the reason why this like legendary status is held so high because when it's truthful, you know, like I'm so, thinking about like guitar players, like, you know, yeah, there's tons of good guitar players, but to me, it's like, at the top top you got Jimi hendrix and you got uh, eddie van halen that's the fucking top top and then you got everybody else yeah you know and i mean and I, then if you just like think about like just the rock and roll riff between the two jimmies there's hardly anything left mm-hmm. and that's just that's just two guys. Yeah. Well, you could, you could, as far as rock and roll, rock and roll. You also, also, you got Johnny Ramone too, though. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because fuck, without the Ramones, there's yeah. just, I mean, how many records would you not have? Like half my collection. You know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I, so kind of going back, I remember hearing Tom Sawyer on the radio as a kid, and it was like. It was like you were listening to like um the like future. A, well, yeah, like 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 a transmission coming from a different world or something. Yeah. And I just remember being like, "Holy shit." Not I can't remember many many songs that just grabbed my attention like that and st- 
still do that. Like that song still fucking does that shit to me. And then I remember the first time actually seeing the album that it existed on moving pictures, which I think was probably Scott Gilfillan's maybe just going through his collection or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know when it was. I don't know how old I was. I know it was probably less than 10, but I remember just being like, just holding the album in my hand, knowing that that song is on there was like, holy shit. Like, and that to me is something that I never like, like that's shit like that makes me appreciate growing up when I did, because you don't get that feeling if you, you know, there, there might be songs like, I'll give you an example. I never knew, and I didn't really do that much research, but not until just, I think last year, I didn't know the sample for the ghetto boys. My mind's playing tricks on me. I never knew what that sample was. It's an Isaac Hayes sample. Um, and I did like that I found out about it by accident. I was at work. The guitar, the guitar in the front. Yeah, yeah. The the loop, the the. Yeah. yeah. So. I remember I was at work and it was on like a station, like I don't know what got picked, Parliament or something, and it was just playing songs. And I fucking heard it, and I was like, my like everything about me was like, <laughs> holy sh! Like you know how many years I've been wanting to know what this was. Yeah. Um, and now I know what it is. And that was cool because I'm so tied into that. But there's no way that would be the same as if you're like you're looking for something and then you f- you find it on you know whatever, and then you just go and you find it on Spotify because if you find it on Spotify, you could search just the song. Yeah. You don't have to find the actual album. You might not even know what album it's on. It doesn't matter because you got the song, and. With every step of along that way that's easier, it's, to me, depreciating the connection that you would have to it. Because with that, yeah, it was like, like it's, it's the buildup. It's the this. It's You're getting connected to it. Connected. It's the whole thing about, like, crate digging, too. Like, when we would crate, oh, man. When we would crate dig for records, it was like finding a, a hidden gem and, like, just getting so lucky that you found something original could have been a 45 or something. And it was like that had a 10 second snippet of a famous, you know, sample. And it was like finding gold in a haystack, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was like right now you can go on YouTube and I think there's a whole channel dedicated to finding what samples who sampled Mm -hmm. who. And all you have to do is type in who sampled and or you can even just put what sample is in such a song and it's mm-hmm. already there for you and it's like both the 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 song that has the sample in it is side by side with the original it's like it tells you everything it's like i don't i don't hate that but we had to figure that shit out without Shazam without YouTube it was either word of mouth or like you were saying you were listening to a radio station and that song came on and you heard it and i remember and I think I've talked about this before too. It was like, I remember when hip hop started because <clears throat> I was in middle school, or I was middle I was of middle school age when like Planet Rock came out and people were starting to break dance and whatever. And I remember when the first wave of like recorded hip hop songs were coming out, 
and I would recognize the song in the song because of my older cousins. Like I knew, I knew what the song Knee Deep was. I didn't know Parliament sang it, but I knew the song. I knew that that rhythm, uh-huh. you know, and I knew Zap and Roger songs because of my older cousins. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who Zap and Roger were, and I didn't know, but I knew that Zap. A, a couple of times, I think I thought the name of the song was Zap, mm-hmm. <laughs> mistakenly. But I knew more bounce to the ounce, and I knew, you know, was it Do Wah Diddy? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was Do Wah Diddy that used one of their songs too. And it's like, it was. And then some of the jazz shit because of Dad. Mm-hmm. Like the first time I started listening to like. Uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest and they started using jazz samples and I'm like hey I know that song I recognize that song and I started to get the, the connection between what like the vocabulary was there and the ground rules so it wasn't like foreign to me to, to understand what rap was doing at the time that it was doing it you know and going back and like knowing the 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 groundwork and what was laid out for what built upon what hip hop became i've always had this like air of like understanding the roots of the music so anytime i listen to something new i immediately extrapolated to like what was coming out like why is rakim better to me than some new MC or something like that. And it's because like you were talking about the guy who made, who couldn't be Tesla's without the guy who made the wheel. Mm -hmm. And it's like, these guys built the fucking wheel. They built the fucking plant that manufactured the wheels. And now there's fucking wheels floating all over the fucking place, you know, in the sky because of the fucking internet and shit. And Tom Sawyer, in particular, the very first time that that song hit my ears and my brain, like, you know, did what it did, understanding what the fuck this was, I literally can envision flying cars. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and it's a weird thing to say, but it's like, that song just was dripping with, like, the future to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, what, you know, what is this? How are they making those sounds, and how 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 can I have more of this? Mm-hmm. And and like you're saying, it still does it to me. It still, if it comes on the radio, if it comes on, you know, I never change it if that's on yeah, the radio. On I mean, a, I don't listen to the radio that often. But on a random playlist or something that just it happens to pop up on my Spotify playlist or something that I've put it in and I haven't heard it in a while, but like to deliberately take my record out put it on the turntable and put it down, it still gives me the same feeling that it did when I was, mm-hmm. however old when I was when this came out. And, and it's, it's not just the, the synth, but it's like the, all of it that came together and what made that sound like it's it's more about how did they get that sound? Like that futuristic, like, 
coming from another planet kind of sound. Well, yeah, and I think, I mean, because even if you listen, you listen to, you know, like Fly By Night, Crest of Steel, not so much the first album, just because the first album's great, too, even though it has a it has John Rutsey. That's before Neil Peart. Um, Is that the white cover with the pink? It just says Rush. In pink, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have... I have the, it's called the Anthology, which I bought years ago. And it's just, it's basically the first three records. Mm. It's Rush, Fly By Night, Crest of Steel. Um, I always had Fly By Night as a kid anyways on vinyl. I bought that on record. And I think I bought it instead because it was cheaper than a tape. Um, and I loved it. I loved that record so much. Um, I also had uh, a CD of 2112. Um, an extended borrowing of the double CD Chronicles, which was Carrie's that I borrowed forever. Um, I had Signals on tape, which was from one of those Columbia Columbia Records published. Yeah, mom got it for us or whatever. Um, just because it was like, oh, look, we could pick one. Let's pick this, and it was Signals, which that's a great album too. Um. And I think that's all I've owned. But oh, and then um, Permanent Waves. Uh, so those are all the records that I had by them. Um, but listening to some of the older stuff about how you're saying, like how it sounds like the future, and it's 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 hard to pinpoint because it's not just the keyboards and this. It has to do with the way that all of them together play, because. Mm-hmm. Neil Peart is pushing that envelope. He's giving you like different contextual rhythmic patterns that work. They're doing time changes that you don't even realize because, and I think, I think it was uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, the drummer from Smashing Pumpkins talked about how they pull off time changes, but just going in a straight line. That's how everyone fucking gets it. It's not like, listening to dream theater or listening to fucking uh um even fucking something like uh blue rondo a la turk by uh the dave brubeck you know the, the oh, big yeah. timeout that could be too much for someone to figure out because it's really complex yeah so the average person might just want to listen to take five because that's a different time signature, but it's the same one. Right, right, right. But Rush gets that same feeling, and they're fucking jumping all over the place. Right. So, like, in order to do that, you need really good arranging. You need everyone to be on the same page. And what I was getting to is listening to those early albums, it's also about where in just, like, the soundscape that the guitar and the bass are playing like Alex Lifeson is a very melodic player. He's playing in the high registers and Getty Lee is a very melodic bass player. So they're giving you this like almost, it's almost like all mids, you know, in a way. Um, and just the way that it's like, again, like how it's arranged. And I think that, I think that quality is what I was, you know, alluding to earlier when I was saying like, they're not aggressively in your face with anything. Mm-hmm. It's like the tonality of the music is inviting. It's intricate and complicated. So you want to figure out, you know, like the time change. Your brain is concentrating on the time signatures and your ears are listening to the melodies in the, in the 
and the stuff that they're doing like on top of it, like what Alex is doing on top of what Getty Lee's doing. And then what's behind and what's behind the, what's at the base of this is what Neil Peart's doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but none of it is like, none of it is pushing beyond. It's like, it just, it all is an interlocking piece of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fucking, it's just, it's incredible. It's like, I don't even have, I don't even know if I have anything other than moving pictures, Mm. but I would say a couple, it was probably a couple months ago. Um, I think you had first brought up wanting to do this and I started listening to a lot of their stuff Mm -hmm. and I was like, man, there's probably a lot that you know that you don't even think about. I do. I know it, but it's just, it was like revisiting a lot of that stuff and I was like, fuck, like there's so much good stuff here that's worth rediscovering because there was a, there was a, there was a time where I would be like, I don't know if it was like exo- if it was like fatigue or something, but like, I just didn't have the capacity to listen to it. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, I don't think I think I think it would. I think it was across the board. Like, I didn't really want to listen to anything that was that intricate. I didn't want to listen to bands like Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening to a lot of stripped down kind of stuff like suicide and and like faust and stuff like that like i don't i don't i wouldn't say that stuff's droney but it's like one fuzz note that just carries itself all the way through a song Mm -hmm. and not that they're not not that they can't be intricate or whatever like that but like what what your brain has to be able to handle sometimes i was just was like not in the mood for it Mm-hmm. And when I was revisiting a lot of the Rush catalog recently, I was like, fuck, man. There is like, it's almost like brand new. It can almost be brand new. Mm-hmm. Like, if you haven't listened to something like this in a very long time. Yeah. And what's cool is there's so much of it. You know, it's kind of like the, like, I didn't, I haven't really delved. I've kind of dabbled, but like, listening to like the doors again you know Mm. just trying to take trying to erase everything and you know which is good like because i don't really listen to radio so i don't have to hear you know stuff but i remember listening to not the hits but some of the stuff off the first record um like 20th century fox and uh crystal ship and um uh what's that um the whiskey bar song that's it's 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 a name though is that the name of the song um the alabama song those like that shit's fucking awesome like it's so it's so good and it's such a like that album that first doors album is so challenging where it's like you know it's funny too because it's both it's on electra and like the stooges are on electra and the stooges make no they don't hide anything about they like the doors you know that album cover looks like the doors album cover um, oh yeah it does on the same label yeah. and don't get me wrong i love the stooges 
but that first album i only really need to listen to like three songs what's and on that 1969 no fun and i want to be your dog um uh-huh and those then the, there's like the yeah and then there's everything else which but those are the three yeah like. and it's like definitely nowhere near the the song craftsmanship definitely like yeah that's good ideas and like this is powerful stuff but like that first doors album it's like they're fucking already masters at everything and and just by the songs that i named they're all completely different and that's not even talking about whether you've heard it to death or not a song like light my fire is fucking like that is fucking the top of the heap as far as song craft um and even break on through you know it's like that album just has so many like the, they're just showing you like hey this is this is everything we know it's yeah. like what the fuck how long have you guys been a band how you know how is this not going to fucking take and the world by storm? How did they record that album in less than a week? It's crazy. Well, they had what's his name, right? Wasn't it Paul Rothschild? Paul was Rothschild the, was the um, engineer or they just producer went in and recorded a timeless album in less than a week. I just watched um um God, what the fuck's that called? The the backing band doc, Wrecking Crew. Wrecking Crew. I just mm. rewatched that. Yeah, it's good. And you know what I missed the first time I watched that? That mm. Glenn Campbell was one of the Wrecking Crew guys. Mm. I had no... I don't even know how I didn't remember that from the first time I watched it. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but it was such a good... Such a good, um, well-made doc on that. It was really good. Um, was I, just, I was just thinking about something um, in, with regard to Rush. You were talking about... Oh, you were talking about their catalog, and the only other revisiting, yeah, yeah, revisiting, and the the one song that because of the time changes and and it's almost it almost is like a Beatles song to me is um, the spirit of the radio, yeah, and like that's the only one because the flagship song for this band for me is always going to be Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. But a close, close, close second is Spirit of the Radio because it's it's the same it's almost in the same like envelope of Sonic. It's like almost in the same Sonic envelope to me, but it's like they went up a notch and they did a like a Paul McCartney thing with the with the complete, you know, drastic Mm-hmm. Changes where it sounds like two songs in one kind of a thing. More, it's like it's like land, air, and sea. It's like they're just on this yeah. journey. It's like okay, we're in the ocean, and now we're on land, and now we're gonna fly around. And like if it wasn't, if Tom, it's Sawyer, like band, band on the run. Yeah, it's like it's literally like band on the run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if Tom Sawyer didn't exist, Spirit on the Radio would be my like fucking like number one. That's probably the truth for a lot. I mean, that's how trips. that's how it is for me too. Like. Because there's so, there's just so much in them. There's so much in those, just those two songs, which is crazy. Yeah, like if they came out and played those two songs and left, (laughs) it would Mm. be like better than half the fucking concerts that were happening on the same fucking month. The thing that's weird, like with the band like Rush is, I mean, there's some people that, there's innovators that maybe they're innovators because they 
saw something and attached some ideas to it and then it became something but then you have innovators that like like how you can't pinpoint what rush was listening to or influenced by so directly when you think of their whole catalog and them growing as a band it's like what did I, like their early stuff yeah it sounds like zeppelin um you can tell like around spirit of the radio whatever that uh because they were big pan- fans of the police. That's mm. where a lot of that reggae, not just from there, but you could even tell, like, you know, Neil Peart's kind of changing the way that, he's, that he plays a little bit because he's a fan of fucking Stuart Copeland, you know? Yeah, it gets a little tropical. And the thing that's cool about everything I've ever, like, you know, heard from Neil Peart and, like, his, like, interviews he was so humble, like super humble mm. and didn't hide the fact that it was like to be able to be a fan of somebody and wear it on your sleeve and not be like this, you know, like, and he's still just as, as, uh, what's the, what's the word? Just as, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like when you're, you're just inherently afraid um insecure yeah he's he's like every other musician just yeah. has this insecurity but doesn't have to like over like like encompass it with this bravado mm. and i think that's what makes rush so cool too is they are just the three of them just seem like we're just yeah and it's usually the it's usually the classic the the insecure aspect of the musician is classically the front man you yeah, know, like Jim but, Morrison was deathly insecure. Yeah, and but, that's why we get Jim Morrison mm-hmm. <laughs> and the rest of the Jim and all the other Jim Morrisons that have come and gone since him. It's that classic, you know. You've you've dealt with it personally with some of the singers mm-hmm. you've drummed for. You know, it's like it's it's always that guy who has that problem. So when an accomplished musician like himself has it it's like it might be an insecurity but it also might just be he's that fucking humble Mm -hmm. you know he's that he's not he's not out there with this like gold fucking chain wearing you know fancy guy that's like i'm the best drummer in the fucking world you know Mm -hmm. he's like i want to be the best drummer in the world but i'm don't i'm not sure if i can ever be that Mm -hmm. you know and you hear it in his in the intricacy that he's putting together things. And it's like, I always imagine, I'm sure that there is stuff that they sound like, but I always imagine because finding out that he wrote majority of the lyrics, I always imagine him reading some kind of book or something and like getting caught up in some story and then like making an offshoot story to make a song out of it. And he's just, he in his brain took the words and uh, imagined what the soundscape was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think some of these songs don't sound like anything, mm-hmm. you know, like I couldn't imagine what sounded like Tom Sawyer before Tom Sawyer. And it's hard to imagine anything that sounds like it now, mm-hmm. you know, like who's, who's putting out the equivalent of a Tom Sawyer song right now. You know, well, thinking about it too, like, I mean, when did that record come out? 80, 81? I was, <clears throat> I gotta look at it. 
I think it's 1980, um, if I'm not mistaken. Jeez, I can't even read it. Can't see it? I need my glasses. I think it's, I think it's 1980. Or maybe 81. Okay. So like, I mean, 1981, that's when, that's when Kiss put out music for the elder, which was a bomb. That was the one that I, I got saved. I didn't buy. It was awful. I wanted to buy it so bad. Oh, my God. Your life, you would have been a different person. <laughs> <laughs> you would have had no friends. Um, Iron Maiden, you know, coming out. Van Halen putting out uh, Fair Warning. Um, what do you have by then, too? Like, Echo and the Bunny Man. Like, you know, basically just all kinds of, like, weird stuff but i mean definitely like hard rock and metal early like metal you know like the british new wave is judas priest like all these bands yeah, are judas like priest what they had like two albums out by 81 right 81 they probably were already up to like five i mean stained class came out in 78 and that was their like now we're really a metal band because they they had judas priest had um rockarola which was i think 70 Five, mm-hmm. and then Sad Wings of Destiny, Sin After Sin, Stained Class. Um, Which is the one that had Green Manalishi? That one might be Sin After Sin, if not uh, and Sad Wings. And that's probably 80, 82, No, 83. it was like 70s. Oh, that's in the 70s? Yeah, no, by the 80s, Judas oh, Priest was no, already no, doing no. Screaming for Vengeance. Right, Screaming for Vengeance was like... That's 82. 82, 83, yeah. And then Defenders of the Faith. And then in between that, though, they have, like, Point of Entry. Um, Point Brit- of Entry has the, British the, deal. the triangle on it. It's not a triangle. It's just, it's like a it's like a, a, road. a road. Yeah. And then it's, like, yeah. old uh, computer paper. Right, right, right. But then the <laughs> British one is, like, it just looks like a rocket shooting in the sky. There's two different covers. Yeah. Uh, Hellbent for Leather or Killing Machine came out, and then British Steel. British Steel was there. British Steel is the one that came out in like 80, 81. Yeah. That's with Breaking the Law and Living After Midnight. So, even just the drum beat in the beginning of Tom's, it's like that's like a break beat. Like, what the fuck's happening? No. You know, like, who told him to play like that? Like, <laughs> and that's who the, told him? That's the thing that's so cool and so crazy about like, um, just that innovation you know it's like those three guys were like you can't tell what they were listening to and then alex lifeson's like not even just the effects that he had on his guitar his approach to the guitar was like it wasn't even a guitar is weird like um i don't that's what i'm saying like i don't think any of them approached any of their instruments like they were those instruments they approached is unconventional yeah like and and this might be just because of the time period but the closest as far as like the sonic realm because like british steel i remember listening to breaking the law during this this like 81 what am i i'm in fifth grade about 11 i'm like fifth grade so it was like 
And my and when I was in fifth grade, I was always in those combo. Fifth and sixth. Yeah, so I always had the older kids in the same classroom. And I remember it was like Brian Clarstrom and like those guys. They were already into like the metal stuff. And obviously Mark's older brother, Scott. Yeah. Um, but I remember listening to Breaking the Law. And I want to say Green Man Alicia with the two-pronged crown was already out at this time too. But, and this is not, I don't think that these bands are similar in any way, shape, or form. But something about the sonic quality was a little bit closer to this this these rush songs was journey to me well yeah like any way you want it mm-hmm. and, and you know like even stuff on escape because i remember mm-hmm. having the escape cassette mm-hmm. in during this time probably well, came out the same year i think escape mm-hmm. may have come out in 81 also or yeah maybe about or it was really close to the same yeah. time and i remember like you know that even though journey is completely a different kind of a band um there was something about you know and it would be like if you had a synthesizer that only had a set amount like you know when they had the mini moog you know what a mini moog sounds like you know what that moog sounds are going to come out of it you know mm-hmm. what's the you know and that was like the guy in parliament who played that instrument who created those songs on the moog it's like a it's like a sound you cannot it doesn't transfer anywhere else mm-hmm. that same keyboard guy from parliament was in talking heads mm. and some of the talking head songs that have that moog it's 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 almost sounds like they sampled parliament you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> but like with the journey um it's just this like the sonic it's, you're talking about the production because it's slick yeah it's the production and it's the sonic envelope of like of of what's as close that i can possibly think of that that matches Mm-hmm. The this album, the I think they moving re- pictures album. I think they recorded this album and maybe Spirit of the Radio at the same place where it was in. Uh, I think it was a house in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, and I could be mistaken, but I think they worked with the same producer for like a handful of records in this period. I'm not sure. And that's typical. I mean, a lot of, a lot of bands you'll see in their timelines where they worked with this producer for X amount of albums. And then it's this person, you know? Yeah. And that's, that has a lot to do with, you know, what's happening on the end result. It's like, like Steely Dan, Gary Katz, he produced their first, he produced their first record to the last record in my mind, which was Gaucho. And that's why they all have this certain, that's why they silly Dan has that sound. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, that's not saying that it's not important that you have the same people writing the songs, but just sonically, like you're talking about. And I could hear that. I could hear like that album right up to like an escape, like by journey, because it had that just, that slick, you know, really full-bodied uh, attack. Like, it's almost like an attack, you know. And like those other records that we mentioned that were contemporaries, I don't think they have the same, like, level of uh, of body. Like, even like, like in whatever, because I'm a super fan, Kiss Nerd, like, Music from the Elder was produced by Bob Ezrin, who was a big time he produced the wall by pink floyd that's like his biggest you know uh thing um but 
music for the elder it does not sound that's the one with even the door sonically on the cover, right? uh-huh. even sonically though it does not sound anything like as good as that yeah it's and that's the thing about moving pictures in its entirety it doesn't sound that dated like it's weird you know like it it doesn't I'm telling s- you it sounds like the future and we haven't even <laughs> caught up to what that future is yet well in a lot of ways that's with like Neil Pert. Like Neil Pert is like the fucking buddy rich of, of uh, rock. Yeah. And it's like the, the one I remember the one album, the one album that I was always attracted to just by the cover was 2112. Mm. And I think, I still think it's a great album, but this one, it's like you expect 2112 to be heavier by just the cover, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's in my opinion, Mm -hmm. you know, this one is, um, but I don't remember all the songs on Signals. Subdivisions is the one that stands out to me. New World Man, that's like the big hit. Oh, yeah, New World Man. But and that, that sounds like The Police. New World Man is, yeah, it does. really mm-hmm. sounds like The Police. Mm-hmm. Like It sounds like something it off sounds of like Synchronicity. Something Sting could actually sing. It sounds like Synchronicity. Yeah. Like the song Synchronicity. Yeah. It totally sounds like that. Like they went in that, that direction. Subdivisions is one of my favorite songs too. That's probably what that's after this, right? That's like 80. Oh yeah. Three, 82, 83. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like really right after this, right? Um, I think farewell to Kings is before this. Well, spirit of the radio is before this. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, um, spirit of the radio. permanent waves is before this. Permanent that's waves. what spirit, spirit of the radio is on permanent waves and free will. Those right. are the big hits off of that. Um, let me look it up though, but I think it might be right after this and then you get like power windows. That's when the, the keyboards would just get too like, that's when I just lost interest where it was like, ah, this isn't even like rock anymore. It's, it's just, but then again too, like thinking about like listening, like white snake, like in those, those hair bands that just had so much keyboard. Well, in I them. think it was just. The sign of times, like everyone had to go that route because they were competing with the new wave, you know. But they just did it in a way that was like they got new cheesy. wave. They got new wave instruments, but were like, yeah. the I don't know, it was just bad. Because the new wave people were doing a totally different thing, and this was like traditional rock groups trying to transform into new wave. Yeah, they didn't really, you know. You know what's funny is Alex Lifeson always looked like he was in a new wave band. You know, like a blazer that almost flock of seagulls haircut. Mm-hmm. Like he never looked like he was in a band that played this kind of music. Yeah. Well yeah, and they were just nerds, but they're awesome musicians and they're just doing what, you know, what they're supposed that to do. That sign language guy you play with, he reminds me of Alex Lifeson. <laughs> The guy who does sign oh, language. Oh, uh, Justin. Yeah. Justin, yeah. Um, yeah, Permanent Waves came out in 1980. Moving Pictures, 81. Signals, 82. Yeah. Oh, and this is the one I always forget. Grace Under Pressure. Oh, is, Grace Under Pressure was good. Is in between Power Windows. Grace Under Pressure was a pretty decent album. And that's then, the one that's like the snow cover, right? It's like all white. Um, let's see. Yeah. It has like a face looking into this, yeah. whatever. Um, but um, 
but yeah it's it's uh i don't know it's just strange like when you find these artists that are really really i mean they're they're huge they're huge as far as influence and there's so many people that wouldn't have even picked up an instrument if it wasn't for rush um but it's not like it's not like you know like like say charlie parker if charlie parker didn't exist how many saxophone players wouldn't exist because of that you know like he basically took what he saw before him like people like lester young and you know all these uh his predecessors you know maybe even someone like a Sidney Bechet and took that somewhere else and just is that pinnacle like person that is so like just not that people got into it because they wanted to be better than him but just that it was like they're so inspired like oh my god I want to do this like these three guys made people pick up bass guitars made people pick up guitars and of course most importantly (laughs) it fucking made a ton of people play the drums yeah um and you can't say that about you know lots of different acts um but what i was trying to get at is so you got someone that is a rush fan that picked up a bass guitar and then it's like the the bass player from Rage Against the Machine. You know, whether you like that band or not, could you make a direct lineage between Rage Against the Machine and Rush? Probably not that easy to do. You know, um, Dave I, Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins being fans of Neil Peart, they don't play like Neil Peart. And their bands don't sound like Rush. So what I'm saying is, like, a jazz guy that liked Charlie Parker, they got to influence him. He's just gonna play jazz, though. Yeah. Like these, these, these guys influenced. Like they were like a tree, mm-hmm. and it just went. I mean, fucking, what's his name? Uh, he's in the movie talking about Trent Reznor was a big Rush fan. Yeah. And it's like, how the like, fuck how do you would even, you how ever do you even equate Rush with with that? Yeah. Exactly. But I think that's the. That's the thing that I know I'm not articulating it correctly or or well enough, but the the intricate sonic scape of this band where it's challenging. So if you think about like a Trent Reznor, like, you know, he's making soundtracks now. He's Mm -hmm. doing scores. It's like even though he's not playing anything that sounds like Rush, it it did do something to him in the in the terms of him being able to like transpose verses into a soundscape mm-hmm. like and i think that's what is more important than just somebody who's like oh yeah you know what i think that that guy sounds like neil pert i think it's because neil pert <clears throat> affected somebody to the level at which they can now go out and create you know something that's like not even in the same language. Uh, I mean, music's all one language, but I mean in the sense of like listening to a score that a guy did versus just a record that somebody tried to replicate a band or mm-hmm. or pay homage to a band or something like that. Yeah, and I think that's more important when it comes to this kind of these kind of discussions. It's like, did Charlie Parker? 
did be would Bebop have existed if it wasn't for Charlie Parker? Because the the way he was playing made all the other players have to adjust to him. Mm-hmm. He came out and nobody was is like, what is this guy fucking even doing? I don't think a lot of the, I don't remember it correctly, but it didn't seem like he was well received in the first times out. A lot of the traditional jazz guys were like, "What the fuck's this guy doing?" You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the whole th- the whole movement was no one liked it at first. At first, it was like punk rock. It was just like, yeah. "Well, this is too." And then it turned into bebop, which then Miles followed suit and became. Well, you because know. he came from that. Yeah. And it's like, Rush didn't invent a genre. They were a sidestep from a particular genre. I mean, I still consider them in the metal genre. Like I consider them hard rock. I don't consider them like, uh, like heavy metal, but they were always kind of like... They're, in, in, they're somehow related to it. Yeah. It's kind of like in the way that they're like, like, I don't consider them a prog rock band, but I see some prog in yeah. certain things. And I don't consider them metal, but I see some things. So it's weird. Um, but um, what was I going to say? I was Right now, I was just thinking of some kind of comparison with, like, with like a yes or, like, um, they're... They're just, I don't know, they're just, they're just this entity that's like, oh, that's what I was going to say. So one, like a big thing that I have a lot of respect for that band, even though I never went and saw them, was they never lost their staying power. Like mm. every tour that they went out and did, even up to their last one that was a farewell tour, but even all the ones in between, they were still always like at the level of like arenas. Yeah. They never took a dip. Kiss was playing at fucking, like, Indian casinos. <laughs> like, that's where, like, fucking, you know, that's, that's like, they were playing, like, county fairs and shit. I think, that is a death knell. I think Kiss's, fall, Kiss's downfall is that Gene Simmons became a caricature of himself. That probably helped him in a weird way, but I think, well, the thing, the problem with Kiss is, is... They're just really not that good. Like when I oh, mean, yeah. I, I could still like. So you know how we're talking about like I remember too. I remember we rented Exit Stage Left, um, and we took it home. And I think we were probably both passed out <laughs> after about you know maybe twenty minutes. Um, song remains the same. I love that movie when I first watched it, and even now it's like that's not something that I could just be totally engaged from start to finish unless i'm really trying acdc i remember we rented um fuck what is it called but it's a concert with them with bon scott and shit was boring yeah you know kiss as far as visually you can be enthralled every second because they're just it's like a fucking circus you know Mm -hmm. but that one trick pony once it has to just be judged on the musical merit, it's just like, uh, it's just kind of, you know. It comes it's really up not, short. It's really not that good, you know. I mean, it comes up short, but it's still. It's like a fucking, it's like a, it's like a Dr. Seuss book and a pop-up book. Yeah. When you're a kid, 
that pop-up book is all the rage. But then it's just like, yeah, but I know that this is going to come out. But now I know out. where the pop-ups are going to pop exactly. up. Exactly. And they're always the same. Yeah. Kiss is like a pop-up book. And like Rush, they're kind of like like a Dr. Seuss where it's just like, you know that shit's fucking good. and it, But it has something about it, too. Yeah. It's more than just the fucking... But all those years they played, they were always at the forum. And I think... I think like just recently going back and listening to the like, a majority of their catalog um, in kind of a rediscovery mode, I really, really was able to, like I heard stuff in songs that I had listened to a million times that I had never listened to before. Mm-hmm. Like I was always, I always listened to them with anticipation of knowing what the words were going to be. And instead of doing that, just like, listening to it like it's brand new like you were saying earlier like trying to erase when you were saying talking about listening to the doors like just letting the music just the language of the music be heard and like there was stuff in some songs that i was just like fuck i've ne- i never even picked up on that mm-hmm. and this is fucking 40s 40 year old songs you know mm-hmm. and like i've listened to the beatles to death I don't think there's anything new in a Beatles song that I haven't heard yet. Unless I buy a fucking thousand dollar pair of headphones and smoke five joints and get as high as I possibly could. And maybe I'll hear something new. But like, I really don't think I'm going to hear anything new there. Mm-hmm. I think I've played every note to death. Mm-hmm. You know, this stuff is so intricate that even though I know the syncopation and I know the rhythm and I know what to expect... I'm still subtly hearing stuff that I'd never listened, I'd never heard of. You know, and it's like, even if it's just like, uh, um, what do you call it when you do the the harmonics? Mm -hmm. You know, like when Getty does his harmonics or something like that. Like sometimes I'm like, I don't remember that being in there. I know which songs have it distinctively, but then there was songs I was listening to that weren't the most popular songs. And I was like, fuck. Like, is it what's the, is there a song called Kings? Is there a song with King title? Farewell to Kings. Maybe it was on that album. I was listening to a song and mm-hmm. I was like, "This shit's like, like if you put a compilation out of their non-popular songs, you can put out a whole brand new, not even a B-side, just like, like a make you know sequence in to make a whole new record out of it, because you would have never listened to these in that order. Yeah, kind of a thing, you know." You know, it's interesting, which is, I just thought of, like, you know, you're analyzing uh, lots of different things just by that um, picture you're trying to paint. What I'm imagining is, so, like, Rush, it didn't take them long to almost be unsuccessful. Mm. Like, by the time they got to Crest of Steel, like, their label was going to drop them. And then they put out 2112 against the label's wishes, which they wanted them to get more radio friendly. So they gave them this crazy fucking uh, concept album. And that's what kind of broke them because it's somehow connected to people because it was good. But by the time they get to moving pictures, even though that's their breakthrough album, it wasn't like Rush knew that they were Rush in the mm. sense that like Led Zeppelin, after Led Zeppelin 2, they knew they were Led Zeppelin. Yeah. So they're writing differently, no matter what. 
you know, like there's something about their records in the evolution of their catalog that's driven by different sources because they already knew they were the best. They knew that they were stars. They knew Rush is just this like, like, yeah, they're, they're fucking drawing a lots of people and they're making lots of fans, but they didn't have that extra pressure, which I think in a way that they were kind of like underappreciated or at least on paper wouldn't get it, weren't getting the same like recognition as the their contemporaries that if anything helped keep them on their path of like being the band that they always were going to be because they didn't have to deal with all this you know I mean, Getty Lee's not a fucking sex symbol. No one's, you know, they didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. They didn't have to do, they, they didn't have to deal with, um, you know, just all the stigmas. Well, it's funny, like in the movie, in that doc, when they are on tour, they don't go to parties. They go to their rooms and read books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like they are not the typical rock band, Mm-mm. you know. And it's funny because it's like... It's like they're not even a band. They just happen to be musicians. Yeah. They're three guys that have joined together. I don't even remember the first drummer. I don't even... I actually didn't. don't even remember that there was a different drummer in the band. Mm. I thought he's been with them since the beginning. Mm-mm. I did not know that. He's the, he was the new guy, even at the end. I, I mean, I remember now thinking back about the movie, I think I remember them touching upon something like that. Well, it's funny because John Rutsey, he was like the image conscious uh, like rock star drummer. Like, oh. So they would have been a totally different band. you know. So then they go and get this geek, Neil Peart, who's amazing and they just were just like okay let's keep doing our weird shit and but they're but that's what makes their music so pure i think is they weren't they didn't feel like like led zeppelin when they get to physical graffiti like there's pressure like we have to fucking do something great right you know i think every and they had to keep up with what was going on like that's why you get in through the outdoor that's why you get disco jams because mm-hmm. disco was big and they had to keep up with what was happening. So like, oh, we're going to make a disco song, you know? And it was fucking terrible. It's terrible that they had to make a disco song. What song are you talking about? I don't even know the title. But what's The only disco-esque song I would think of... Candelabra? Is, uh, oh, you're talking about Carousel Ombra. That song. Yeah, that song's bad. It's terrible. But like trampled underfoot, that's disco. The beat, the beat's kind of disco, but it's a mm-hmm. great song. Mm-hmm. But I think it's Carousel. That's on Carousel the outro, right? Yeah, yeah. It's fucking trash. Um, there I go. What Just doing what I said? I <laughs> talking about that. I was like, it's fucking trash. Uh-huh. There you go. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we're not really. We're not really rating an album or anything like that. I mean, we could like moving pictures or, I mean, this the this... moving pictures is the only album I have of theirs. Mm. <laughs> I just think that like I don't know like I just wanted to talk a little bit and I guess we did but like there's just something about like Neil Pert that 
I mean, the, I, I don't see much changing in, dare I say, 50 years where any kid that gets into drums is probably going to have the same heroes that I did for the most part. You know, yeah, you have your Tony Williams, you have your this, but I'm talking about the fucking, the big ones, you know, like the John Bonhams, the Keith Moons, fucking Neil Peart. It's like, it's, it's just that he brought so much to, to rhythm, to, to the approach to, and I think it was just his sense of like, technical prowess but his application of it because you could be technically great at a lot of different things but if you don't have the the courage to try and also the the thought process to create you know what i mean yeah like like there's like imagine like a like a pianist that could replicate everything chopin's ever done that's great but can you write anything that's even remotely close to Chopin. Right. I bet you there's not many. Yeah, I think that's I think that's one of the things about people who are who are trained they're so trained in their discipline that they don't have the ability to like apply it outside of their discipline. So it's like <clears throat> oh, you can play Flight of the Bumblebee let me hear you just make something up and they can't make it up. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, it's the same with like art. Like you have to, you, you can look at a piece of art and be like, that just looks like a little kid did it. But then if you really know what you're looking at, it's like, holy shit. Like this is really like fucking great. But yeah. the person that like, you know, cause I'm looking at that so much, like, and I don't know that much about art, but I do know like looking at something like by Basquiat Someone that doesn't know anything about art could just look at that and just think that it's just doodling and it's whatever. But someone that understands a little bit, it's like, do you realize that that artist had to study and understand all of that technique and how to put all these things together, got to whatever point, and then it's like, oh, this is my voice with all of my skill set, you know? Yeah. Like... You can't just skip the steps. You can't not study your craft and expect to be able to create. It's like what we talked about before, like having that idea in your head, how to draw something. And if you get close to it, good for you. But chances are, if you got close to it, that's because you have something behind that, meaning some skill, some talent, some know-how, um, and uh, I don't know. I think that they, like, Rush as a group itself just had that sensibility of, I mean, who, I, don't know how, I don't know how you could be a band in the 20, 20th century that sounds like nobody else. You know, like even, I mean, Rolling Stones and the Beatles, their origins... You could tell what you could. They fucking recorded who they were listening to. Yeah, you know, all their record, their first albums were like cover albums, pretty much. Yeah, um, and then they turn into what they turn into. Stones took a little bit longer, in my opinion, uh, but nevertheless, they still, they kind of came from the same point of origin. And then you get these weirdos like a band like Rush that's just like, and again, once again, like 
three-piece to a four-piece in a musical outfit, that's a huge difference, even though it's only one person. Yeah. But it is, you know. And um, just what's like the capability, the, the capabilities and the expectations that you're putting on three people. And maybe they didn't think that they were having expectations put on them, but as a listener, you think like, how am I only listening to three people? You know, like mm-hmm. I've, I have albums that are probably 15 people are playing on them. Or like when I was watching that wrecking crew, there's fucking 30 people in that studio. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I did not, for some reason remember was the beach boys. Brian Wilson some of those records that the Beach Boys made, that's not even the Beach Boys playing the fucking music. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's just like their first, maybe after their first album, they already start having other people. And it was the Wrecking Crew who, who mm-hmm. played the music. It was like Brian Wilson knew that these guys can play better than his brothers or his cousin, whoever the fuck's in his fucking band, brothers and cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew that they weren't on the record. Mm-hmm. But they were still going out there as quote unquote the Beach Boys like no the real fucking Beach Boys is this I can't think of her name right now but the bass player yeah fucking phenomenal isn't it Carol Carol yeah like that lady is fucking badass that bass player and then you had the 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 you know the Wrecking Crew I don't know everybody's name Hal Blaine's a drummer and the and the guitarists and all this and it's like it's like you listen to a song. You, if you if you take into context something like something like that, like a pet sounds, and it's like it's a fucking phenomenal record, but you attribute it to this group, the Beach Boys, and you're unbeknown, you know, unbeknownst to you, you're listening to fifty fucking plus people that made this record, and I'm not I'm not trying. I'm not taking away from like the genius of what Brian Wilson is. He he did orchestrate those songs. But when you think about that in context and you know that gets all the praise in the world. Mm-hmm. That album. And then you take a, an album like Moving Pictures and only three fucking guys. Three guys who go on tour as the same three guys, who go in the studio as the same three guys, who recorded as the same three guys. And you listen to this record and it's like the depth that this, that some of these songs have is greater to me than some of the songs. And I mean, that might be blasphemous to say to an album like Pet Sounds, but it's like in the context of just like the craftsmanship that it took to make this thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's crazy because even, or, you know, and, and, and even more drastically, not not quite Millie Vanilli, but the association. Mm-hmm. They None of those guys were even on the record. Mm-hmm. They were just the picture on the cover. Not even the singer sang on the fucking record, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, when, when, you, when you find stuff out like that, when you find stuff about the process and, and you, <clears throat> you learn about these things later... And then you really go back and you think about it, like, even a fucking Slayer record 
has more organic craftsmanship than something like that. Does. Well, yeah, I think it. I think it warrants like like recalibrating classics in that sense, hmm. because like there's a thing like Neil Peart has talked about Tom Sawyer, uh, just that song, and talking about how every time that he played it, it was still a challenge. He wrote that part <laughs> and was just like fuck, I got to get through all this because there's so many little things. Yeah. And he said, but then he says that, and the times that you play it well, it's so rewarding. But that's the thing. So like you're saying, like, yeah, Brian Wilson, he's the mastermind. He wrote all this stuff that maybe his brothers couldn't play. So then it's like, that, and that was always my thing. Like when I was a kid, like growing up and I was listening to these albums, I'm just assuming it's those dudes. Right. And... What attracted me to live music and what started, like, as I got older, seeing bands. Like, one thing that helped me, like, because I liked, like, one of the earliest bands that I saw a lot was Fishbone. They're a great live band. As far as I'm concerned, they sounded better than their records. So, for me, that was something where it was, like, cool. I guess every band that I listen to their records are going to fucking be like this live. That's the point, you know? And for me being a musician, that's my whole thing. Like I, I like making records now. I didn't like it before, but I've always loved playing live. And what I didn't like was when I'm going to go see a band that's live and it's like, you can't even fucking give you me can't. what you did on the album. Yeah. You're supposed to be better than the album. Right. What's up? And then you find out later that it's like, yeah, Brian Wilson hired all these people. And also, like, how much longer did that album take to finish and this, that, and the other? Nothing to take away from the end result. But I think those are all things to consider when you're talking about, like, comparing it to something like this where it's three people that are going to reproduce that album anytime they fucking want. And yes. they're the ones that fucking wrote it. And they're the ones that have to fucking do it. You know, that's what I want to see. I don't want to go and see a band, you know, which nowadays they could do it. They're already doing it. They have people lip syncing and this, that, and the other. But can you imagine seeing an act and they're not even plugged in, but there's a band behind them that is plugged playing. into the house that's playing everything. It's like, that's it's like a puppet show. That's cheating. Yeah. It's, yeah, like, it's like, I don't want to fucking, I don't want to cheat. And, and that's the thing too, where like studying like early recordings, like that's why I have so much praise for the craft of like making jazz records because those motherfuckers didn't overdub. They didn't fucking go back and fix it in post. If they couldn't, if they couldn't get down on tape, these good, like, um, offerings that's because they weren't good enough to do it in the first place and so some what of those did they guys, do to get there they fucking practiced and some of those guys would leave a recording session to go to a live session to then go to a recording session all in the same day oh that's i mean prince was like a jazz out artist if yeah. you think about it because he just couldn't stop fucking playing yeah like yeah charlie parker would go to fucking cut a record and then he would go play an engagement and then do after hours. Yeah. Like now. And that's why like, and there's, man, there's this one record that it was a 10 inch. It was at cosmic vinyl. It was, um, good shape too. It was live at Minton's. It was like, uh, Minton's. It was Thelonious Monk. Um, 
wasn't Charlie Parker. I think it was like Paul Chambers. Anyways, but it was basically like a recording of a jam session at Minton's Playhouse in New York. And it's like, I don't know why I didn't buy it. I should have just fucking bought it. I'm fucking stupid for not buying it. But it's like, you know how much stuff was probably done at those after hours jams that was like better than anything that they probably recorded that's like the stuff of like classical like you know like mozart bach like wagner all these like composers that had tons of music that wasn't written for the court you know that how do we know what they were really doing right you know it's like that's the thing yeah, that's they didn't crazy have recording studios to jump into and lay down tracks they just did everything well their recording studios is the right they wrote it yeah it's crazy it's crazy um i mean i think i think the music world uh whatever i mean now we're in the 21st century uh seeing you know that's what would you say? I would say that the, as far as we know it, the whole music industry really took off in like the seventies taking off, not, I'm talking about big, big records and, you know, uh, advertising campaigns, really getting music out to the public. Um, that's already, I mean, I would say the fifties, that's almost 50 years already. Um, uh, but I think, but I think that I, I don't would know. say I, as far I, as like, I, I think the fifties is different. I think because I I think of mass. I think of the record industry in in terms of like what their agenda is is to just get as much records out there as they possibly can to to sell to people. Like yeah. as a product itself, like not the the quality of the music, not the distinguishing between like you know the bands and singers but just what the record industry's job is is to push sales of records mm-hmm. i think with the advent of the jukebox to me that was the beginning of the record industry seeing the potential of like mass sales mm-hmm. and then it started to form into what it it started to form in the 60s with the Herb Alpert, the, the you know, like AM Atlantic, uh, Lou Adler signing the Mamas and the Papas. And like, I think the 60s is what Columbia, yeah, I think the 60s learned from the 50s as far as like the Brill building and just like you know, we're signing acts on the same day. You're coming in, you're singing a tune into this fucking microphone, one take, pressing it and then putting it out, and then that thing's in a jukebox a week later. And then in the 60s, it was more like, okay, we're going to cultivate albums and contracts and, like, you know, the mamas and the papas and the whole Laurel Canyon scene and what was happening in New York with the folk people and all that stuff. And then I would say by then the machine knew what it was and it was unstoppable by the 70s i think in the 70s is when record stores were like king like it wasn't the radio anymore it wasn't the jukebox anymore it was like 
Now it's the records. Because I, I think the 70s is when the records started showing up in department stores. Mm-hmm. Well, think, that's when... And that's why I was kind of saying like the 70s in a sense too, because for two reasons. First reason was because like you're saying like the 50s, the 50s, it wasn't about LPs. It was about singles. Right. 60s is when you start getting into LPs, but it's not anywhere near like what happens in the 70s where now you have the 70s, you have true artist development. You have albums by, you know... Tom Petty, you have albums by uh, Billy Squire, by you know just all these you know James Taylor, uh, Carol King, and um, Linda Ronstadt. So they're putting out like because they have more to say than just a fucking shebop song or whatever you know. Um, And because the industry was so young and trying to figure out how to cultivate this, that's how they took chances on so many different artists, you know. That's how you get your, you know, your Huey Lewis in the news in the 80s. But that's because he was in a band called Clover in the 70s that had a chance to become a professional recording artist that no one knows shit about Clover and they didn't sell records. But if he didn't even have that opportunity to begin with, how would he have turned into Huey Lewis in the news? You know what I mean? Right. And whether you like Huey Lewis or not, you know him and he was fucking pretty relevant for us for X amount of years or whatever. Um, but also the other aspect that I'm thinking about pointing to the seventies is also because now we're at this, like at this cycle and have been in for since the nineties where things are just being regurgitated, but it's almost like they're being regurgitated from the late sixties to now. Like no one's, no one's going back and redoing fucking fifties fucking hits. What was the birth of Rolling Stone? Uh, probably like the early 70s. Because I was going to say, I think that, I think Rolling Stone is as much a part of what boomed the record industry as the record industry and the Mm -hmm. artists themselves. And that's how albums got into department stores was because the magazines got in there first and then it was just this like, it was almost like stocks. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I've got, I'll sell you these records, but you got to put this on your cover yeah, and vice versa. And then they just had this big, you know, it's yeah, basically it the, just it was the, this pale, a new form of in payola. In real life payola, mm-hmm. where it was like end caps started becoming a thing. Like you walked into a Tower Records and as a f- music fan and as a music buyer, you'd walk in and you'd be like awed by like the way that they would design an end cap and it would be like, the album cover art multiplied 50 times and like spread out in this like display a full size cutout of the artist with a cutout where the CDs were like, you know, shelved on this like thing. And you'd walk in and it's like, Oh, you know, the new George Michael record is out. Oh, I'm going to go buy this, you know, cause we were buying more CDs in the eighties mm-hmm. and stuff. And you didn't realize that record company had to pay Mm-hmm. more money to have that shit so that when you walked in you immediately saw that instead of having to go to the bin under the fucking alphabetic file and it's like it's payola mm-hmm. in a, in a yeah and know. alan freed back then those guys they didn't have a magazine to hide all their shit behind yeah it was almost like the music industry was like an early version of the constitution with only X amount of amendments. And then by the time Rolling Stone comes, it's like, you know what? We need to add some more amendments in there because we need to fucking figure out how to hide this shit. 
And like, I and don't it think, I don't think, but it doesn't work now. <laughs> I don't think Rush. Led Zeppelin was a was like everywhere. You knew who Led Zeppelin was at a certain point in your life. Even if you grew up ten years ago, you would come across the idea of what Led Zeppelin is. Mm-hmm. Rush was not like that. Rush was not a big. I don't remember them being covered very well in the magazines that were happening at the but time. But they had they had radio play though. Well, they, I mean, you know, they did have Tom Sawyer, but if you didn't, if I don't remember hearing anything but Tom Sawyer on the radio. I kind of remember. I don't know. Rush is one of those. They're just. They're just a. They are a big outlier in the history of rock music because to me, like everyone kind of did know them, but, but how did you know them? Cause, Cause everyone knew kiss, but you, how could you not know kiss right. even if you but don't think, know their music? I think you know rush them. was like something that got passed on to you by somebody. Well, who music was, lovers, somebody who was in the know and they're like, Oh, I see you like these kinds of bands. Well, you really should listen to this band because this is the band that all these bands that are making the albums you like, this is what they listen to. They were like one of those kind of bands. Well, it was real, it was real musicians. Yeah. That's what it was. You know? And it was like, they didn't have like, they didn't have the same like marquee stardom as like all the other bands coming out. They're like, I don't, I'm not I'm not saying I don't like Judas Priest, but I'm not hunting Judas Priest records. I'm mm-hmm. not sitting down and listening to a Judas Priest playlist. Like there's something antiquated about Judas Priest to me that just does not translate anymore. You know what I mean? Well, I think it comes down to just the value of their music. I mean, we I remember when we were kids, we loved them. Yeah. But they also had a lot of imagery. They had I mean, but they were also very well covered in the trades. They were very well Well, yeah. Every circus magazine, every hit parader, every cream magazine and I think back, had them in it. Backing it up like cuz I mean, I have some Judas Priest albums. Like I have I got Stained Class, I have Point of Entry, I have um, Screaming for Vengeance and after Defenders of the Faith, everything before that, which those three are before that, if I saw them, I would buy them because I'm a fan. Mm. But when I go back and I listen to stuff, I'm like, it doesn't, like, it's not as good as I thought it was going to be. Kind of. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. It's like it's a, it's a nostalgic in a way because you're like, oh yeah, like. Eye in the sky. Like, I know all the parts, and if it comes on KLOS, like, it's kind of fun to listen to, mm. but I don't get excited about it, like, oh my God, I gotta listen to this and turn it up. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, it's like almost, it's a nostalgic letdown, sort of, in a way. It's because it, I think it's because ultimately it wasn't as good as it was to no. begin with. It was all about the image and who they were and what they were, and like, but. Iron Maiden still holds water. Well, yeah, because it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Like Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, like, you know, there's still bands that still hold that same water to me. But I always, I always know what I'm going to get when I go back and listen to those bands. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that I 
don't think that they're complicated or intricate or anything like that. They're all, they are in their own way. It's just better. But Rush, like, is, like, going back and, like, rediscovering something, you know, that's how good they were. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, at the time, I don't think anybody realized how good they were. Or if they did, they just didn't feel the need to, like, exploit that. And that see, that's the thing that's cool that's going to be a testament to their... Um, true longevity is you know how years later like and I'm, I'm kind of like over it like for a while i kind of got mad but like people ripping led zeppelin apart which they do deserve because they were there's a lot of thievery um recently i just uh i think it was last year i remember i was this dry- year they lost that suit no, no, they no, won no. That suit? no i'm talking about just me personally like oh. i remember i was driving a rehearsal and Something just made me want to listen to, uh, or no, I think I had it on a mixed CD. This is when I had my old car before I had my car now where I could just listen to Spotify. So I listened to the CDs and I would just grab mixed CDs that I'd made. And it was kind of cool because I didn't remember when I made them. So I almost didn't know what was going to come. It was almost like listening to a shuffle. Um, and the song, uh, Tangerine came on, uh, was it Tangerine? Yeah, Tangerine from uh, Led Zeppelin Three. Three. That's one of my favorite albums by them. I love it just because it has the you know there's rock and then it's like folk. But I was I was really listening to it. I'm like, Tangerine. <laughs> All it is is fucking Sweet Jane. It's mm. the same chord progression, exactly the same. You could you could take Robert Plant's vocal off of it and you could put Lou Reed's over it. And it's the same fucking song. So Led Zeppelin getting torn apart for shit like that, I think is a good thing, but it still doesn't change the fact that those four guys fucking played it better than anybody. They were smart about it. They did it at a time where, okay, yeah, people are going to find out, but they found out how many years later where it really, is that going to matter? Is that, does, is Jimmy Page still not a guitar God? doesn't matter, but you can't do that to rush. Nope. <clears throat> and that's the thing that's so great about like, that's to me that's that's why they're never going to go away and that's why they were a band that didn't have to have this big surge in popularity or whatever but yet they're still making they still made records and they still were relevant and they still got better and they never fucking backslided as far as like like I'm a big Yes fan I saw Yes one time I saw them at the Greek theater and they never really got bigger than that. This was in 90... I don't know what. Oh, did you go with Jason Cordero? Uh-huh. Like 96 or 7. I don't know. It was when they put out that talk album. Um, but they've definitely had dips. And you know, and now they can't even be the same band because Chris Squire's dead. Yeah. But like Rush never... Like every time they came to LA, it was fucking at the forum. Never anywhere smaller than that. Yeah, it seems like they. By the time they they got here, it seems like they could only do arenas. What do you mean here? Like by the time they got to California, playing like I couldn't see them playing the Troubadour and then graduating to the Palladium and then graduating to. No, they did it fast, but that that they were right time, right place yeah. to. Like, they did a lot of their big first tours was with Kiss. Like, Kiss took them out on the road. 
and Kiss wasn't. It's funny with their story is they got like they had a rivalry with Aerosmith where Kiss was opening for Aerosmith way back when they're both coming up. Aerosmith had a little bit more credibility. They were a little bit bigger, and Aerosmith was headlining. So Aerosmith changed the specs of the stage for Kiss, giving them limited space, mm-hmm. being like you could only set, you could only use this much of the stage. And some bands were like, you guys can't use your pyro, you can't do this. There's it's classic, you know, like Black Sabbath did the same thing with Van Halen. Yeah, where they were just like, this is all you can do. And Black Sabbath did it with Kiss too. And Kiss was just like, well, then we're just not going to fucking play then because we can't play and not do our whole show. Right. But it was showing signs that these big cats were like afraid of the new kid on the block. Yeah. But Kiss was never afraid of anybody. And they, because they were just like, well, we're Kiss. What's, what do we have to worry about? And they took bands like ACDC on tour their first big tours. They took Iron Maiden on their first big tours and they took Rush on their first big tours, which is pretty cool. But anyways, now we're just, now we're just going to start talking about Kiss all day and I, I don't... <laughs> That's its own episode. <laughs> That's never going to happen. You know what? It's we should just... Like... What we could do is just take... Eventually, when we have like 100 episodes, we'll just extract Snippets? all the things of Kiss and then that will be our we, Kiss episode. We can cut it up. <laughs> That'd be funny. Um. Well, I don't know how we wrap this up because we're not going to rate anything. No, it's just, just a little shout out to go the, listen to fucking Rush, man. Yeah, like I don't think anyone's ever going to forget Neil Peart. I mean, it's impossible. And as much as a recluse as he was, it doesn't matter. Like you know. Well, for the people who know Neil Peart, they're never going to forget him. But there are people out here who've never heard of him, who don't know who he is, who don't even know who Rush is. Which is what I'm saying. Like. Go listen to Rush. Yeah, they're going to find him. Like, listen to Rush. If you want to start easy, start with Tom Sawyer and then go backwards and then go back in the other direction. But fuck, man, listen to Rush. Yeah. It's good shit. (laughs) It's the best, Jerry. (laughs) The best. The best. Oh, my God, I'm starving.